Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, February 28, 843-661-0937 is our number. Last day of the dumb month, I guess, Rip. <laughs> so the month with too many R's yeah. is, is, was upon us, and now it's adios, amigos, That's right. uh, to February with 28 days. It isn't leave year, is it? No. Okay. Nope. Um, so this is it. I think so. So March is tomorrow. Yep. Um, as we march ever closer to spring, um, I want to go back real quick. Good morning, sir. Good morning. I want to go back real quick to a um, to an issue we delved into um, yesterday. Had a lot of feedback. This is not a sports show. I mean, the bad boys sports radio um, kind of satisfy the needs and wants of our sports-centric um, fans, but or listeners. Fans is kind of arrogant. Listeners would be a much better word, uh, a more appropriate word there. But but uh, debated yesterday, not debated, we discussed a number of things yesterday, Gamecock and Tiger fans alike. Um, I was in a meeting for a couple of hours, uh, probably, I don't know, Rev, I mean, 50-50 Gamecock Tigers, as you would expect. Right. A business meeting in South Carolina, if you said, hey, a raise of the hands, how many of you are Gamecocks? About half the room. How many of you are Tigers? About half the room. I mean, that's kind of the nature of, of our state when it comes to that football rivalry. Sure it is. But, um... But, but the number of stories that are in circulation to the mainstream media about the ACC is, is very interesting. There's a story out this morning, uh, yesterday afternoon. I actually sent it to a good Clemson a friend of ours. Um, CBS Sports, Dennis Dodd, a respected journalist in the field of sports, um, saying that the, the Florida State Board of Trustees met yesterday. And as part of their meeting, um, it was revealed the – uh, I don't want to say the pay standard, but the um, the modus operandi of how you get to a certain number in the Big Ten, how you get to a certain number in the SEC, how you get to a certain number in the ACC. And we can complicate this as much as you'd like. I mean, we can talk about the, the, um, the percentage of games on the ACC network, the percentage of games on the Big Ten network, the percentage of games on the SEC network. The percentage of games that include, you know, two unranked teams. I mean, there's a lot of metrics in play here. It's not as simple as it appears to be. But here's what I've gathered from all of my readings. I'm, I'm a big sports fan, and um, and as a gamecock, I'll say this. You ready? I mean, I, th- this will be a bit. It's not arrogant because I don't have any business being arrogant as a gamecock fan. It's it's for for once in my life, I feel like I have Clemson over a barrel. <laughs> does that make any sense i mean historically yeah. growing up i've lost to the tigers and i couldn't understand how a bigger university with a larger alumni bigger budget how do you keep losing to your uh so-called little brother the clemson would say stop that nonsense we're nobody's little brother and That's they right. aren't i mean they they are they, they absolutely are not but um so when when clemson builds an indoor practice facility and then the gamecocks do i'm going like why why didn't we build it first when Clemson builds a football operations building and then the Gamecocks do it, I'm like, why? Why didn't we build a football operations building before they did? So we've kind of been chasing the Tigers. Um, they have been unbelievably pro- proactive. I think the University of South Carolina has been unbelievably reactive. And and let's level, let, let's be as, as, as honest as we can be here. You ready? When the SEC expanded in 92, the Gamecocks were not their first choice. But they added two, Arkansas and South Carolina. Arkansas was the team they were in hot pursuit of, uh, expanding out west. Florida State was the team that they were most interested in and coming you know, a little further east and, and having a presence on the east coast. But that's when Florida nixed it. And that began 
you know, an in-state school having the right to kind of nix another in-state school from being in the deal. So the Gamecocks were the backup plan. I mean, they they were the um, the 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 second choice. (laughs) How does that make you feel? Of the SEC. Well, I mean, it it is what it is. Um, Lucky, probably understandable. Lucky. I mean, you know, lucky. uh, You know, to be honest, and and there's an old story that King Dixon, who was the USC AD, really didn't want to get to the SEC. He thought it made more sense to be in the Metro. Um, good call there, King. Um, yeah, let's choose the Metro, uh, which is disbanded. It's not even in existence any longer. Wasn't he the one that kept us from having the concerts for a while? He, yeah. He I mean, resisted he, the, the Rolling Stones and, and Paul he, McCartney playing at Williams And the Bryce. one that hired Fig Newton to be the basketball coach and took forever to hire Fig Newton. Didn't take forever to hire Bobby Knight or Mike Krzyzewski. Took forever to hire Fig Newton. Um, I think we won the war in Kuwait quicker. I mean, I think uh, I think George Felton, I can't think of who, a succession of coaches. Anyway. Um, the Gamecocks looked for a basketball coach. We liberated Kuwait in a shorter period of time, but simultaneously to the Gamecocks looking for – here's what I'm saying. Clemson has historically been on the ball. South Carolina has been questionable in whether they're on the ball or not. Now, now once again, they, they kind of got lucky. Florida convinced the other member institutions that, you know, didn't make any sense to have another school in LSU, excuse me, in, in Florida. So they kind of, you know, well, who else is out there? South Carolina is out there. And uh, in 92, the Gamecocks became a uh, a member of the SEC, the Southeastern Conference. Um, the same time Arkansas did out west. that They've had other expansions, including Missouri. Um, and now Oklahoma, Texas will be a member of the conference. Um, but, but. I do feel like right now this morning, and I think Clemson fans in, in their heart of hearts would kind of agree that the Gamecocks have an upper hand to play in this conference affiliation and realignment. Um, good good Clemson buddy of mine said yesterday, you know, this thing's taking off like a jet. What do you mean? He said, it's moving faster than you would imagine. What do you mean it's moving? What is it? And he said these two super conferences, you know, the, um, the SEC and Big Ten really began to separate themselves and it's the most recent television deals. But here's what I've gathered. And this is um this is from someone who knows much more about that than I do. What, what I've gathered is the media rights, the, the amount of money, and it's not as simple as this, but this is a, a way for us to kind of understand it. How many games does your conference play that has in excess of 3 million viewers? And the ACC just doesn't have any games with more than 3 million viewers, unless Florida State and Clemson are playing. If Florida State is playing North Carolina, there's a pretty good chance it's got more than 3 million viewers. If Clemson's playing Syracuse, there's a pretty good chance it's got more than 3 million viewers. But if Clemson and Florida State aren't, now if they're playing one another, obviously there's north of 3 million viewers because they're two national brands. But if Clemson isn't playing and Florida State's not playing, the ACC has somewhere in the neighborhood of 1 million viewers, maybe 1.2 million viewers. And the, 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 the ratio, the scale of pay as it relates to those games, in other words, the only reason Wake Forest, Duke, um, Boston College are getting $36 million a year for the ACC network is Clemson and, and uh, Florida State have a national following to some degree. I mean, they aren't Michigan or Ohio State. Uh, you can look at the tally. They aren't Texas. You can look at the numbers. They aren't Alabama, but they are a they are a brand of note in college football. So, when when you look at the SEC and the Big Ten, nearly every game except maybe Vanderbilt playing Vanderbilt has more than three million viewers. I mean, if Mississippi plays LSU, 
it's more than 3 million viewers. If South Carolina plays Texas A&M, it's more than 3 million viewers. If, if Arkansas plays LSU, it's more than 3 million viewers. If Florida plays um, Tennessee, it's more than 3 million viewers. In fact, it's hard in the Big Ten and SEC to find a game that doesn't have north of 3 million viewers. That's the deal. Uh, you can say, well, we have 90,000 people in our stadium. That's cool. I mean, that's great for the booster club. That's great for the fan base. But in the grand scheme of things, it's viewer units. It's subscriber units. And it's all about television and how many people are watching those games. And the ACC's problem, Reb, is it's kind of a two-horse race. Now, now, Virginia Tech contributes in some way, shape, or form. But I went back and looked last night. Nothing like Clemson and Florida State. I mean, Virginia Tech is a former national championship winning program. Remember Mike Vick and Frank Beamer? Kind of interesting. Shane Beamer, the Gamecock coach, is the son of the late, excuse me, not the late, um, I mean, former coach at Virginia Tech, Frank Beamer. Um, but but so, so Clemson and Florida State are complaining that we've got to have some disproportional sharing of revenue. In other words, we can't have this equal sharing of revenue. You guys don't care your weight. And we're talking about football. And that's the driver, you know, with college athletic revenue. So, and I get it. I mean, if I'm a Clemson guy, I'm aggravated about that as well because we're basing a lot of the um, the um, the disbursement of funds equally to the member institutions, and none of the member institutions can get north of a million, or they can't get a million and a half viewers. There have been a few games. North Carolina played Virginia Tech, I think. It might have 2.1 or 2.2 million viewers. But if it ain't Clemson or it ain't Florida State, they don't have, and that's kind of the magic number. I mean, to me, when, when I read and listened and talked to people, they're, they're looking for games that have north of 3 million viewers. That's kind of the sweet spot of revenue. In other words, they go to a Pepsi-Cola or a GM or a Ford or one of these big, big brands and say, hey, there's an 80% chance that our games are going to have 3 million viewers. Here's our, um, what, what do we call it in radio? Here's our rate card. Yeah. You know, here's our rate card. Yeah, based on. For, for, uh, based on viewership. Yep. I mean, it's based on how many people you think are watching the game. Makes so total when, sense. So when you go to the ACC network, um, the, the only time they can say, hey, we're pretty sure we got north of 3 million viewers is if Clemson's in a game. Because the money the, the individual universities get is basically television revenue, that's right? All, that's what it is. That's, that's exactly so what it is. that not it's be It's a share of te- television based revenue. Based on how many viewers you, you draw. And you've got, you've got two teams that are contributing far more than their fair share to the revenue of the conference that everybody's enjoying um, the sharing of the loot. So I get, I mean, if I'm a Clemson fan, I'm going like, wow. So so we're, along with Florida State, contributing the majority of notoriety to the conference in football. But when we start, you know, splitting up the dough, they get as much as we do, and nobody's watching Duke Wake Forest. I mean, I saw last night, there were like 20 games of the last three years of less than a million viewers in the ACC. Football, I'm not talking about basketball. We know about Tobacco Road. We know about, you know, uh, how many basketball championships Duke and North Carolina and Wake Forest and, and NC State. But, they, you know, there's no doubt about it. Tobacco Road is, well, you know, one of the hotbeds along with, what, the Indiana area, Kentucky, uh, Kansas. I mean, they, there's no question about that. But but the, the, the conference revenue is based on, that's uh, not solely on football, but it's primarily on football. And, um, and if you're an SEC school, about every game you play in, they're north of 3 million viewers. If you're an ACC school, you better damn well hope you're playing Clemson or Florida State or, or three million aren't watching. And, and there's, a, um, there's a cry amongst the FSU crowd and the Clemson crowd that we should be getting, 
you know, everybody shouldn't be getting 36, 37 million. We should be getting 50 million and some of these other schools getting 25 million. And at a true capitalist market, they're exactly right. I mean, there's no question about it. Hard to argue against. I mean, they're, they're kind of driving the train. Everybody's on the gravy train. And, um, and when you equally disperse the money and the Florida State trustee meeting, I mean, somebody screenshotted a, um, an illustration in the trustee meeting. I don't know if this is legal or not. But it was a um, it was somebody put somebody made a presentation, kind of a PowerPoint, and it showed the SEC and Big Ten, and it showed the um, the deal in place today, and the likelihood of the deal for the next ten years, and it showed that the the SEC Big Ten schools will have about a twenty to twenty five million dollar per year financial advantage over the Pac twelve, the Big Eight, and the ACC. And that's what people are concerned about. Man, if these schools start having a $20, $25 million a year advantage over their peers and competitors, how do you compete? And I think if you're Clemson or Florida State, you're beginning to see, where do I land? So, so when I said yesterday, it's interesting to me that Clemson started a gymnastics and lacrosse program. Um, you, you know what that tells me, Rev? They don't have a lot of faith in South Carolina agreeing to let them become a member institution of the SEC. And once again, the Gamecocks don't run the SEC. I mean, you forget that. I mean, you know, eventually that, that'll be decided by the conference in, in total. But but historically, there's been this um, gentleman's agreement that if a member institution in said state, um, if, if we're petitioning another member institution in the state that we are, I mean, it'd be Georgia Tech, Florida State. It'd be Clemson. It would be, yeah, I'm trying to think, Auburn and Alabama, both are in the league. Um, I guess it would be Louisville, you know, in um, in Kentucky. Uh, I guess Kentucky, if Louisville were to look around. Mm-hmm. But Louisville ain't Clemson. I mean, Louisville's a, a, a noted program in, a, in kind of a hot southern metropolitan area. But but in the, in the grand scheme of things, as it relates to the ACC, it is Clemson and Florida State. I mean, they're the two that are going to have to try and find out where they land, unless the ACC agrees to disproportionately share the revenue, and Clemson and Florida State could have the best of both worlds. I mean, they could get the lion's share of the money and just beat the crap out of these other teams in football as we go to a 12-team play. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon to me. And normally, I'm frustrated because the Tigers have an advantage. You know, they build a indoor practice facility. They build a um, a football operations building. They've done uh, whatever it takes to commit or compete at the highest level. And the Gamecocks are saying, well, we're thinking about it. We're working on it. You know, we'll get to that sooner or later. Well, for the first time, in, and it's really dumb luck. Florida State wants in in 92. Florida says, ah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not for that. So the SEC goes looking somewhere else. Uh, the Gamecocks are the likely suspect. They, along with Arkansas, join in 92. And it's been a financial bonanza since the um, the SEC network launched. And um, And it's all about, you know, once again, it's all about, how many football games attract 3 million viewers? Nearly all of the SEC do. Hardly any in the ACC do. Let's go to the phone. Here is Breeze early this morning. Hey, Breeze. Hey, what's up, guys? Um, you know, I saw a, saw a joke that said, um, if you want to know what's going on in the world today, all you need to do is go back three years and read all the conspiracy theories. A kid to give all of y'all credit, and of course, my humble self, we were right. It appears, well, it doesn't appear as a fact that America contributed money to the Wuhan lab. It is a fact that uh, 
that the virus was created there and was released there. And I would also say there's a probably a better than 90% chance that it was released on purpose. At the very least, America and China are responsible for 7 million deaths, if you listen to their own statistics. A million Americans died because our country and China worked together on a lab and a lab in Wuhan. Now, I will tell you right now, you, there's no way you convinced me it wasn't released on purpose. But, you know, you still kind of hear crickets. That also, um, I was reading something, and you know who's responsible for the mess we're in right now? Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon took us off the gold standard. And I remember one of my college professors, an economics professor, laughing, saying that it was ridiculous to be on the gold standard. But then if you look through history, go back to Rome when they started doing copper money instead of silver or gold money, what happened to there? What happened to Rome? Well, I believe we know that. And then you remember in our old history, we had these things called continental dollars. You remember here? Remember that from the revolution? They called it continental whatever. I do. And they would. So they were just printing them and printing them and printing them. And I believe it was either your boy or one of them other guys that founded the country and said, hey, man, these things, are, these things are as worthless as confetti. Nobody, you know, it's worthless. So they had to back it with gold. And then you look back to places like Germany, did the same thing back there. And then, you know, they printed all this money, printed all this money. And that led to Hitler's rise to power in World War II. I think Venezuela actually has a bill that you can get that's worth ten trillion dollars, ten trillion a ten trillion dollar bill, and look what happened to Venezuela. So, a Republican named Richard Nixon is the daggone old reason right now that we have all this runaway inflation because our dollar is becoming more and more worthless as we print more of it to pay for our bills that we're spending too much money on. So, if you want a daggone for all you Democrats out there, if you want to have something on Republicans. That's about as good a thing to have all of us I can think of. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I'm talking about. I'm thinking about. Okay, I was born in '63. Um, Nixon takes America off the gold standard. I mean, there's a big debate about Bretton Woods and some of the um, some of the politics involved in that. When did Nixon go to China? I want to blame him for that as well. You know, the, the legitimizing of China <laughs> as an economic force. Right. That would have been around the same time. Yeah, I mean, we're off the gold standard in 71. Nixon goes to, I mean, was it in 71? It would have been the early 70s. I'll yeah. Google that during the break. But, um, yeah, now we're beating up on Richard Nixon, um, Richard Milhouse Nixon. Took us off the gold standard in 91. I think led to rampant inflation because of fiat currency. But he also made a trip to China, and that became a big, you know, political to-do. Uh, the the American president stepping off a plane in mainland China to negotiate potential trade policy with um what what we I mean a nation we didn't know a lot about at the time eight four three six six one zero nine three seven take a break back in a few you know Breeze is far less humble than I am he takes a lot of credit that he may deserve or may not I'm not that kind of guy <laughs> I mean I, I'm 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 the kind of guy that will okay. deflect. I'll accept the criticism. Uh-huh. I'll accept the responsibilities. I don't have any interest in the the fame or acclaim or notoriety that goes along with being right all the time. Um, but since Breeze opened the door, all right, I think it's only right there that we, we respect his um, his attitude <laughs> and his get approach. to it already. Will you? Well, I mean, you know, you're talking about you know, is COVID um, did COVID come from a wet market? Remember in the early days 
I mean, we didn't know what we were talking about. I mean, we're, we're, we hear there's a virus and it's going to impact our lives in a way that we can't imagine. And nobody knew what lied ahead or what, what laid ahead or what lies ahead. Um, we found out the hard way. We got some things right, some things we, we didn't get right. But the same crowd that's telling you to pump the brakes on Ukraine or the same conspiracy theorists and nut jobs that told you the uh, this would be a perfect time to do this, Reb. Um, while you're not doing anything and I'm working hard on behalf of our listeners, mm-hmm. see if you can find that John Stewart, Stephen Colbert bit. Okay. This morning would be the perfect time yep. to, di- to give um, John Stewart his credit, along with um, the other conspiracy theorist who strongly suggested that maybe, just maybe, this virus could have emanated or began or origin, or its origin could have been uh, in a virology lab. Um, my question yesterday, I got a call, we'll get there in two seconds. My question yesterday was why would the U.S. Department of Energy be weighing in on uh, an investigation about the origins of COVID? I mean, I couldn't understand that Department of Energy. I mean, why do they have? Well, the reason is um, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Um, the Lawrence Laboratory National Laboratory is a, uh, a division in the Energy Department that, as part of its mission, is to track, I, I guess, and mitigate to some degree, Rev, the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. I mean, that would fall under the purview of the, the Energy Department. Um, this this um, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory specializes in the study of biological weapons um, such as viruses. So when you talk bioscience, biotechnology, um, bioterrorism, I guess, uh, remember when you and I were trying to understand molecular biology, oh, yeah. genome sequencing? I mean, I can remember <laughs> going home one afternoon and my wife said, what do you know about genome sequencing? I said, nothing, nothing not a thing. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> like, Dylan, nothing, not That's thing. why I said it that way, because I knew you would, you would relate to that. I got so it. there's a scene in, um, in Ed Bradley's 60 Minutes interview <laughs> with Bob Dylan that Dylan says to ba- Ed Bradley, he says, um, I mean, Ed Bradley says, so Bob, people would leap over your fence and, and talk to you about Jesus and religion and organic farming? And Dylan would say, yeah. yeah. He said, what do you know about organic farming? He said, nothing, not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they did it anyway. But yeah, I go home and my wife said, what do you know about molecular biology and genome sequencing? I said, nothing, not a thing. <laughs> uh, just as Dylan told, told Ed Bradley. So that's why the Department of Energy. Um, now, now, once again, the White House says it's inconclusive. And uh, here's what happened. Uh, what had happened was they, the U.S. Department of Energy went from undecided to likely um, its origin to be in a, in a, um, in a Wuhan virology, virology lab. I want to do that this morning. I think we owe John Stewart that. Because, I mean, Stewart's one of them. You know what I mean? He's not one of us. John Stewart's one of them. But he's a little bit courageous in being one of them. And he goes on Colbert's show, and Colbert says, I mean, do you know something that we don't know? And he says, no, I mean, the, the, the laboratory has the same name as the virus. Really? Uh, what if we had a chocolate outbreak in Hershey, Pennsylvania? <laughs> you know, what do we blame it on? The homeless? No, it's the chocolate. Uh, somebody's on the phone. Let's go there. It's Dale in Florence. Good morning. Morning, guys. I think a couple of things are pretty telling. The first is that China would let people from Wuhan go anywhere in the world they want to as long as it wasn't to other parts of China. Um. So whether it was a lab or a, a wet market, whatever, 
I think we can be pretty sure it, ha- you know, it happened in Wuhan. And then when are we going to get to see the Fauci emails? We got we, we, we got Republicans in the in, in the House now. When do we get to see those Fauci emails where, you know, he's all but uh, agreeing to the fact that he sent money to that virology lab and that's where the virus came from? When do we get that information? You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate it. Remember behind door number one, behind door number two, behind door number three? I mean, we, we, we've looked, we peeped behind door number one, Twitter and, and um, the FBI. We've not looked at all yet. I mean, I, I would imagine there's some investigating behind the scenes going on uh, relating to Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. But, but the one thing, and I still say it, um, I mean, you, you and I have debated, what is the most important door out there? I mean, is the most important door, the influence peddling of the Biden family, or is the most important door COVID? And, and how intentionally misled we were. We were terribly misled. Were we intentionally misled? That's the question. I get it. I mean, Trump made some mistakes. Um, states made mistakes. The federal government obviously made mistakes. Were those innocent mistakes or were there or was there some nefarious behavior involved in all of this? Um, did Pfizer drive the train? Did Moderna have a big hand? Was this all about the money? You've heard me over and over and over and over again imply that money's the answer. Now, what's the question? So were the mistakes that were made, I've got a same uh, same day, National Review. Now, this isn't Breitbart. This isn't one of the right-wing magazines. This is a very reputable conservative news site. Um, new research finds little to no evidence mask effectively lessened COVID spread. The same thing we said for about three years now. I mean, the pandemic began in 2020, so we're into our third year of, um, I don't know, Rev, a post-mortem or what we got right, what we got wrong. I tell you what, we got right. We got a lot right. I mean, we, along with our listeners, got a lot right. The shot was somewhat effective, not highly effective. It's somewhat durable, not highly durable. Um, it was the only highly part of the shot. It was highly profitable. I mean, it was unbelievably profitable. Go look at the bottom line from Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. Pfizer, in particular. Um, it was highly profitable, somewhat effective, somewhat durable. There's some new science out there now. There's actually a scientific study of the 78, and uh, this is kind of an interesting word, because as I said earlier, every peer-reviewed um, research on the mask was statisti- uh, deemed statistically insignificant. So um, th- there's this, there's this, um, this organization that took the 78 randomized trials analyzing the effectiveness of physical interventions, and they're talking about masks, and lessening uh, the spread of respiratory viruses. I'm reading their language because I want to give them credit. Um, Here's what they found. They concluded little to no evidence that large-scale masking efforts were effective at preventing the widespread of COVID-19. Sorry. I mean, I read it every week. I mean, I kept up as, 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 um, passionately as I knew how to keep up. There was never research out there that said uh, the mask works. And then you say, well, what about the M95 or the N95? Okay, you ready? I mean, they've actually included that in this. And I'm talking about five studies, 8,407 people, um, three studies, 7,799 people, um, seven studies, 11,412 people, even the much touted I mean, we were told, you don't know what you're talking about. You're talking about those, those masks you bought Sherwin-Williams. 
I mean, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the N95 or whatever. Yeah, N95 respiratory mask. Okay, you ready? So let's say the, the, the much touted N95 respiratory mask provided little to no extra protection for healthcare workers when compared to medical or surgical masks. Compared with wearing medical or surgical mask, wearing N95 P2 respiratories probably made little to no difference in how many people have confirmed in these 78 studies. And they go through each and an individual study. Now, there's some people still unwilling to listen to the information that has been made available. Um, there is uh, Jennifer Nuzo, an epidemiologist at Brown University, sitting down with the Atlantic Magazine. Oh, okay. I'm sure that was a fair accounting of the events going on. Um, she says, and I quote, we have fairly decent evidence that masks can protect the wearer. Where I think it kind of falls apart is relating that to the population level. So she's basically, I mean, my interpretation of what she says is, if it makes an individual feel safer, then we're counting that as someone who is feeling safer. Well, your feelings have nothing to do with it. There's got to be some science involved in this. So in the same day, and I got both these articles from the National Review, which is, um, I, I, I think even the liberal mind would consider the National Review a reputable media outlet amongst conservative, um, you know, thought leaders and provocateurs. So the U.S. Department of Energy has concluded um, via their research, and, and I get it, why in the world is the U.S. Department of Energy? I mean, why are we trusting anything they say? Because they have embedded, and it goes back to the former Soviet Union, they have embedded, and it's really about nuclear pro proliferation and bioterrorism and, you know, the, the weapons of mass destruction. We're talking about, remember, uh, where am I thinking here? Syria. We believe Saddam Hussein may have disposed of his weapons of mass destruction in Syria. The people tasked with, with tracking all of that down was the, um, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Um, a lot of bioscientists, a lot of biotechnologists, um, a lot of bioterrorism experts. Um, some molecular, um, excuse me, molecular biologist, and um, and those who know um, what Dylan and I don't, and that is genome um, sequencing. <laughs> so the U.S. Department of Energy has concluded uh, via an investigation, fairly thorough investigation, that it's more likely than not the origin of the virus was in the Wuhan virology lab. The same day, research is made available to the general public that wearing masks had little to no effectiveness toward the transmitting in the community of COVID. So those two things, Rev, we were told what? You, you, you knuckle-dragging NASCAR fans just won't listen to what the science says. I mean, the science, and remember, Fauci referred himself as science. So I guess um, some of the liberal thought leaders, some of the, um, some of the, uh, the conforming masses, said to Fauci, I accept your definition of science. You are, sir, indeed, science. Some of the rabble-rousers, some of the contrarians such as yours truly, said, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, th there's some things here that don't quite make much sense. And now, th there's been a little bit of sense made of this. For everybody out there who questioned the effectiveness of the, of the, uh, of the mask, you were correct. For everybody out there who thought that we jumped the gun in concluding that the virus's origin was in a wet market, you are correct. So I would strongly suggest, and maybe the federal government can invest in, I am no longer I'm a conspiracy theorist. 
Remember? I mean, you were a conspiracy theorist. Oh, yeah. I was a conspiracy theorist. The majority of us who didn't buy what the government was selling were labeled, identified as conspiracy theorists. I think we need um, kind of a um, accommodation that we aren't conspiracy theorists any longer. We were right. You were wrong. So to the few listeners who believed the vaccine was highly effective, you were wrong. To the few listeners who believed that COVID uh, began or the virus began in a, in a wet market, you were wrong. For those of you who believed that the mask worked, you were wrong. It's fun to be a conspiracy theorist, <laughs> especially when you're proven to be right. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Do want to remind our listeners, the loyal listeners have been kind and gracious enough to allow us to be moderately successful in the marketplace of media. Um, we will have two podcasts available for download or, or your viewing or listening um, next week. We think the first will, um, the first ever will be Tuesday. The second will probably be Thursday or Friday. Uh, that's our plan to do two a week, roughly an hour in length. We're working on some interviews. Some will be um, my loud mouth for an hour. Others will be me interviewing uh, Robert Cahaley, maybe a Lindsey Graham, maybe a Tim Scott. Um, you know, so some other interesting uh, personalities. We talked Clemson uh, football earlier to, today. I'd love to get Dabo and Shane on um, together. <laughs> I think that would that be, would be that would be pretty fun to get on because I think those guys genuinely like one another, have respect for one another. But um, no stoplights will be available next week for sure. Rev and I have um, worked tirelessly. On behalf of oh, you, true. Um, the listener and potential <laughs> viewer, trying to get these things um, worked out right. I mean, the one thing I think Rev and I have in common is if we're going to do it, we're going to do it the best way um, we know how. Now, that's if that's right. any good, I don't have any idea. But it'll be the best we can do at what we've – I mean, we've had equipment delivered. We've got new setups and computers and whatnot. We, we think we'll have some memorabilia associated, some shirts and hats and whatnot. Um, uh, anyway, it, it, it's exciting for us and um, – and I'll, I'll let Rev jump in here and explain, but he and I had a conversation probably seven, eight years ago about digital media and about the internet. And th there was a lot of discouraging information about radio and television and, uh, you know, print media. I think print media refused. I think there was a degree of, of arrogance in print media that there has not been in television. There has not been in radio. And I think Rev and I agreed and the owners supported us in believing that, um, Instead of competing with digital, let's partner with digital. There will always be a place for radio, but it's not the same place. I mean, it's just not. People don't find out about presidents getting shot over the radio much anymore. They don't hear about the war beginning on radio anymore. I mean, we've evolved. Radio is still a, a very important ingredient in, 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 you know, communication medium, but it's not the only show in town. Television is not the only show in town. And what we've been able to do is try to figure out a way to incorporate uh, you ready? Vertically integrate ourselves Whoa. into a um into a media empire run by <laughs> moguls known as the Royal Rev of Radio and, and oh, yours, there you just can't you just your, couldn't help yourself. And, well, I mean, it's Ted Turner, Rupert Murdoch, Dave Baker, and, oh yeah, and myself. But I'm no, we're excited about it. <laughs> you guys have been very kind and gracious to allow us to be a part of your mornings. Um, I mean, at times it's easy to do this, at other times it's it's a bit grindy to do this. Yesterday morning, first two hours, I'm not going to tell you a lie. I'll level with you. Um, I wanted to be in the bed asleep. Uh, <laughs> it was grindy. But it, huh? it was very grindy yesterday morning. It's a, um, I mean, it's just kind of, it's the dark of summer, excuse me, winter. 
There's not a lot of things going on politically. Um, I mean, there's plenty of, of things to talk about, but there's not this hot button issue that you know everybody's locked in on and zoomed in on and focused in on. But um, people have asked you to. So, so what do you hope to do with the with the podcast? Same thing we do with the radio. Entertain. I mean, it's got to be entertaining, guys. I hope it's interesting. I hope it's somewhat informative. I hope it's I hope it's fast paced. But the main thing we want to be is um is entertaining, and it never would have been possible without you guys. So we're asking you to not only stay listeners to Wake Up Carolina, but become subscribers to our podcast, No Stoplights, once it makes its debut next week. I think you said it very well, and it's all about distribution. So we talked about digital, and we call it vertical digital integration or whatever. That sounds fancy, but yeah, we are, we've been on broadcast radio. We'll continue to be on broadcast radio. I mean, this is, this is great fun. This is job number one, but the ability to, uh, to basically put a product out there for consumption on different platforms is, uh, for, for creators, which is one of the new words is uh, very desirable. And so we're going to give it a shot. And we've um, partnered with a, believe it or not, the owners of this station on a uh, marketing company. And we partner with those guys, and it's uh, it's and they're amazing. very heavy into podcasting, and they do it a lot in graphic the Northeast. designs oh, yeah. and all these and other they're, they're sorts great of things. At it. And I think you guys will like our designs. I mean, Rev and, and those folks. I mean, I've been very. Uh, I, I knew what I wanted. I mean, I told Rev one day, I said, I kind of know what I want. I just don't know how to get there. And we had some real capable, talented people help us um, get there. We need you to subscribe, yeah. and we need you to view because if you <laughs> subscribe and you view. We get some of that Google money. <laughs> we'll be begging soon, trust me. <laughs> and when we get enough of that Google money, that's when we really become moguls. <laughs> Take a break. Back in a minute. Dave Baker. I, I, and I honestly mean this. I think we owe a great debt of gratitude to science. Science has in many ways helped ease uh, the suffering of this pandemic, uh, which was more than likely caused by science. (laughs) So, and that's kind of, hold on a second. No, 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 no. Listen, listen. I'll, it's I'll, coffee. I wouldn't I'm, do that. To you. I wouldn't for, do that to you. I'm so what, what do you? Takes, but what do you? What, what, what do you mean by? That? Do you mean like well, so this was, perhaps a, this, there was a chance that this was created in a lab? There's an investigation. A chance? Well, but I, so, I, 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 oh I, my if God. there was evidence, I'd love to hear it. There's I just don't a know. novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan, China. What do we do? Oh, you know who we could ask? The Wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab. The disease is the same name as the lab. That's just, that's just a little too weird, don't you think? And then they I, ask I, those scientists, they're like, how did this... So wait a minute, you work at the Wuhan Respiratory Coronavirus Lab. How did this happen? And they're like, mm, a pangolin kissed a turtle. <laughs> and you're like, no. I, you, you, the wait, name wait, of your lab, wait. if you look at the name, look at the name. Can I, let me see your business card. Show me your business card. Oh, I work at the... Coronavirus lab in Wuhan. Oh, because there's a coronavirus loose in Wuhan. How did that happen? Maybe a bat flew into the cloaca of a turkey and then it sneezed into my chili and now we all have coronavirus. Like, come on. Okay, okay, okay. Wait a second. What about this? What about this? Listen to this. Wait a second. All right. John. Oh my God. Oh my God. 
there's been an outbreak of chocolatey goodness near Hershey, Pennsylvania. What do you think happened? Like, oh, I don't know, maybe a steam shovel made it with a cocoa bean. Or it's the chocolate factory. Maybe that's it. That could be. That could be. That, that could By be. By the way, Let me... I gave them all tuberculosis. Just yes. That could, that could very well be, and Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins and NIH have said, like, it should definitely be investigated. Don't stop with the logic and people and things. The no, name I... of the disease... Wait a second. Wait a second. the building. Wait a second. But I, I, it could be possible, you could be right, it could be possible that they have the lab in Wuhan to study the novel coronavirus diseases because... In Wuhan, there are a lot of novel coronavirus diseases because of the bat population sure, no, there. I understand. It's, it's like the same. It's like, a wait local a specialty, and it's the only place to find bats. You won't find bats no, anywhere it's like else. Saying, oh why? wait, Austin, Texas has thousands of them that fly out of a cave every night, every night at dusk. Is there a, a coronavirus in Austin? Coronavirus? No, it doesn't seem to be in Austin. Coronavirus. <laughs> the only coronavirus we have is in Wuhan. Yes. Where they have a lab called... What's the lab called again, Stephen? The Wuhan I, Novel Coronavirus Lab. I believe that's uh -huh. the case. And now, how long have you worked for Senator Ron Johnson? Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something about Ron Johnson. This is not a conspiracy. Here's it, the thing it, about science. A, you could be right. Here's, you could be right. But this is the problem with science. Science is incredible. But they don't know when to stop, and nobody in the room with those cats ever goes, yeah, I don't know if we should do that. Like, a few agree, years back... I agree with you. If science can do it, they will do it. They will do it. They're like, oh, curiosity killed the cat. Oh, okay, well, let's kill 10,000 cats to find out why. And you're like, that's what science does. They, they push things. They, they do the thing like, okay, listen to this. So, a few years back... You know we stopped filming a long time ago. I understand that. Ago. Can I tell you something? This is... So, I mean, Col Col the loudest response or the loudest applause line was when Colbert shot back, I guess you're working for Senator Ron Johnson. You know, one of those conspiracy theorist nuts who from the early days and beginning of the COVID pandemic suggested that maybe we should look at the Wuhan virology lab for the origin of the, um, of the virus. Now, now, here's the question about the Department of Energy, and I want to go back through this again. I mean, this is an official because it concerned me a little bit yesterday. I mean, I expected the White House to do what they did because we think Biden may have some um, friendliness associated with uh, with China, the Chinese government. I mean, his son has been paid enormous amounts of money by Chinese energy company. So can he honestly broker uh, with China? Can, can he, as president of the United States, can Joe Biden honestly represent the interests of the American people in, in contradiction of Chinese uh, policy. I don't know. I mean, we don't have any answer to that. We do know his son was paid an enormous amount of money um, to work, quote unquote, whatever that means, to work. Um, I mean, apparently working requires, you know, cracking prostitutes. That's uh, a part of his kind of a prerequisite of his employment um, status. Apparently. So, uh, and I, once again, I'm speculating again. Here's another conspiracy theory. You ready? Biden couldn't blame the Chinese because the Chinese have uh, accessed political influence from the Biden family. Once again, that's just a conspiracy theorist. Um, maybe, just maybe, Joe Biden's son is an expert, uh, kind of an undercover expert on Chinese energy policy. Maybe it wasn't the chocolate. 
Maybe it wasn't the Wuhan virology lab. That's just another conspiracy theory that I have. As a as a as a card carrying member of the um, Association of Conspiracy Theorists, maybe maybe there's nothing to see here. Maybe the Biden family have never peddled influence. Maybe Joe and Hunter and and Jim Biden are as legit as the day is long. Or maybe the reason they couldn't be as aggressive as uh, an American president needed to be and protect the interests of the American people is they had some ancillary concerns. Once again, that's a conspiracy theory. You do with it what you choose. But the U.S. Energy, excuse me, the U.S. Department of Energy yesterday, actually the day before, um, weighed in on whether or not the origins of COVID were transmitted man via animal, animal via man, or were they, you know, um, from a virology lab? And the Department of Energy, and my question was yesterday, why is the Department of Energy doing this? I mean, why, why wouldn't it be some sort of like the NIH or the CDC or, or some other trustworthy government agency? <laughs> say that a bit um, sarcastically. Yeah, let's trust the NIH and the CDC. So, um, so if you ask yourself, why would the U.S. Department of Energy weigh in on the, um, the origin of COVID, it's because the Energy Department has a special division within, and the special division within is called the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Why is that? Because the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory um, was really created and tasked with um, investigating, tracking, um, the, I guess, mitigating the potential proliferation of, of weapons of mass destruction and um, kind of a special subspecialty in biological weaponry, such as a virus. So when you talk about bioscience, biotechnology, uh, bioterrorism, I read a good bit last night. It's actually an interesting article on National Review. You got to be a subscriber to read it. You got to be kind of an insider like yours truly. But um, but they go into great specificity and detail about what the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory has done, how successful they've been, um, how they took on this task, this project. It's a government agency. Now the White House yesterday said. Well, I mean, they, they don't know. No, I mean, nobody knows. I don't know that we'll ever know uh, beyond cert, beyond you know any question whether or not it um, you know its origin was in a, a wet market or a uh, a laboratory. It does seem to me, and then this goes back to Robert Malone and some of the other people that we listen to who were censored by Twitter, censored by social media, the media in general. But they started going down the road rev of molecular biology and genome sequencing, and they had real concerns about the genetic makeup, the molecular makeup of this virus and, and you know, kind of juxtaposed to the original, excuse me, to the um, to those that we found out were from a wet market. And, and I remember Malone and some of the others. Now, once again, you didn't hear much from them because they weren't allowed to speak their piece. But they were censored. They, they were tamped down. They were told to shut up, you crazy nut. You, despite Malone being one of the pioneers in mRNA vaccines, understanding probably even better than I do genome sequencing and molecular and molecular Maybe. biology yeah he may know a touch more uh than yours truly but um but yeah the u.s department of energy and here's what they did uh, but they had the origin of the virus is undecided and it's a little bit like a 40 percent chance of rain or a 60 percent chance of rain so they've gone from basically 50 50 to somewhere around 70 30 and the 70 percentile is we believe this disease's origin or this virus's origin was man-made. I mean, it was gain-of-function research. 
And, you know, I would imagine, I think somebody asked earlier, uh, Dale asked about Fauci's emails, Fauci's revelations, you know, how involved Fauci was in, in helping funnel money to the Wuhan virology lab. He admits that. But he admits that they took NIH funds, CDC funds. He was one of the um, uh, the leading advocates for funding certain things in certain in certain places. Now, I mean, he always and has steadfastly denied whether it was actually gain of function research. Remember the interview he had, um, and it might have been Jim Jordan, uh, it might have been Rand Paul. I think it's Rand Paul. We may try to pull that today because I think we're going to revisit some of these previous conversations. It's a glorious day if you're a conspiracy theorist. Because in one single day, um, the Department of Energy is saying, and, and once again, guys, this isn't yokels on the radio. I mean, this is not hayseeds with a radio show. I mean, these are bioscientists. These are biotechnologists um, who specialize in bioterrorism. These are, um, dare I say, molecular, uh, excuse me, molecular biologists who are familiar. And I'm you know, a little bit nonchalant about this, but they are familiar with the, um, and, and what I read last night, some of the genome sequencing. I mean, it's kind of a, um, it's almost like picking a lot, Rev. I mean, if you can, and this is so far beyond me and my comprehending, but there's something about the genome sequencing that, um, that, that allows you to say this looks far more man-made than it does of natural origin. And then there's another genome sequencing that leads some of these experts and specialists to believe, no, this probably are originated in the wild. It probably was at a wet market when, when a, you know, a bat bumped into a giraffe and the giraffe bumped into a human and the human, uh, you see where I'm Which headed. is what Fauci was saying. Well, I mean, that, that's exactly what Fauci was saying. I mean, he, Fauci basically dismissed, ah, that's unfair. Fauci discounted significantly anybody that, that had the notion, and I'm telling you what Fauci was concerned about. I mean, Fauci's not a moron. You don't last as long in politics as Fauci did by being a moron. I mean, he's got this complex, I mean, no question about it, a bit of a Napoleon complex. Um, but, but Fauci always said, I mean, he always covered his butt on the, the, um, the gain-of-function research. I mean, he was so adamant about, no, it was almost like Bill Clinton. It depends on what the definition of is, is. And, and Fauci began parsing words in, in such a, um, I don't know, just such a, a lawyerly sort of way um, that, that it, was, it was concerning to me. To see a highly educated, highly accomplished bureaucrat kind of go that far down in the weeds of explaining. And it was a little bit, I don't say it was irrational. It was, um, it seemed desperate to me. When Fauci never said that we, we just, that's nonsense, Senator Paul. We didn't fund gain of uh, function research in Wuhan. He said we didn't fund it. And then he would go and explain and he would try to explain and try to explain. And there are some people who believe when they're talking, they're winning. And I think every time he tried to explain himself a little further, he may or may not, to me, incriminated himself because he appeared to be a little bit desperate. And it was a little bit arrogant in that, Senator, you're an eye doctor. You don't understand the genome sequencing or the, or the molecular biology um, that I do. And anytime somebody volunteers that much information, they're trying to confuse you with BS. I mean, there's an old saying, if you can't, you know, if you can't convince them with brilliance, confuse them with BS. And I think Fauci was convinced that he couldn't convince Rand Paul, who was a fellow physician, uh, I doctor nonetheless. But, fa- you know, you got to believe Rand Paul had a better understanding than you or I about biology mm-hmm. and, and, and molecules and so- the, science of, um, the science of medicine. 
But um, but the Department of Energy didn't say um, we're sure beyond a shadow of a doubt. A little bit like the Murdoch trial. I mean, you know, it's, it's not there's there's no assurance beyond a reasonable or shadow of a doubt. But there is. I mean, the Department of Energy concluded it's more likely than not that this disease's origin is in or was in the Wuhan virology lab. Here's what I think it allows us to do. I think you basically um, subpoena Fauci. You compel him to testimony. Um, he's so arrogant he probably will because, he, you know, the one thing about Fauci, no matter who's in the room, he thinks he's the smartest guy in that room, and you challenge him on this. So the Department of Energy, I mean, let's, let's operate on the assumption they know what they're talking about. I mean, they're as versed as you are. They're as much of an expert as you are. So, so, so the Department of Energy, not Breitbart, not, not, the, um, not the Florence County GOP, not, not some political antagonist of yours, Dr. Fauci, but a very reputable government agency that appears to be more reputable than yours, has concluded that what you said was inaccurate. When you said this looks like a virus uh, originated in the wild, they disagree with that. H- help us understand how it could have been uh, a mistaken gain of function, some sort of lab leak. I mean, that was always the theory. Some, now, to be honest with you, I don't have any idea. I mean, what is a lab leak at a Wuhan virology lab? I mean, is that washing, uh, uh, you know, some sort of um, biological chemical? Is that, you know, is that a rat running under the door? Getting, I mean, you see where I'm headed? I don't know. I don't have any idea how that would work. And I doubt very people, very many people listening to my voice understands what a lab leak would look like. Now, here's the dastardly part of this. You ready? Let's, I mean, I think Breeze has argued this, and some of our other listeners have argued this. Did, did China realize that they had a lab leak? Did China understand the danger of the virus? And did China expose some of its own citizenry to the virus and export them to nations abroad? I mean, that's when you really, I mean, if you want to do a full-blown investigation, that's what's going to have to happen. I mean, if we've concluded that it's more likely than not the disease, the virus originated in the virology lab. And some way, somehow, it got into the mainstream population. Did or did China not allow that to happen? And did they allow people knowingly infected with the virus get on a plane and make their way to Western nations? I mean, I'm convinced they did, but that's another conspiracy theory of mine. I'm convinced that China knew there was a lab leak and certain people have been infected. And they took those people who had been infected and they put those people on planes and they sent them to certain places around the world that would be very much to their um, superpower attainment status um, acceleration. That's kind of a weird way to say it. And we're talking about America, LAX. Did China put an infected person on a plane and send them to LAX in the good old U.S. of A., knowing full well what the consequences would be. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. Uh, we want to get a call? Yeah, we squeeze in a call. We'll take a break. That okay. way we'll be set up for Tanya J. Powers at Center. Okay, let's take a call. How about that? Uh, Bobby and Hartsville. Hey, Bobby. Hey, good morning, guys. i got a couple of comments, but the first thing I want to say is, uh, can you mention about the, uh, the dumb month? Uh, keeping in mind that the dumb month gets dumber next year. It is leap year next year. So. <laughs> it's a day longer. You're right. Uh, <laughs> um, a couple of comments. One is uh, 
it had Trump won, had Trump won, how would this uh, virus, how would the vaccine talk, how much, how different would it be? Because he's the one that that was on the front end, you know, of getting the vaccine started. So how, how much, you know, what, what would it have looked like, you think, had Trump won, actually won? And the second thing is, um, when is your guest coming back for the Mur- Murdoch trial? Because I'm really uh, following that close and interested in his uh, comments, and I'll take it off here. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. It'll take me a little longer than we have to explain um, wh- what I think would have happened had Trump stayed as president. We'll do that. Stick with us, Bobby, for a little bit. I'm trying to get pa- – I mean, I work around his schedule tomorrow or Thursday, one day or the other. He'll either be with us – I mean, if, if, if he's available. I mean, he's got a life and a job and, a, and an occupation and career – but he's normally able to put to you know it's a couple of um a couple of moments early in the morning, so we normally have him here at about eight oh five on a Wednesday or Thursday morning. I'll actually reach out. He's already texted me this morning talking about something that happened yesterday in the trial. I can give you the good old boy take on the Murdoch trial. I can't give you the lawyer take. You know what are trial lawyers looking for? Where did the prosecution score points? Where did the defense score points? Um, I, I, you can't see the jury. You know, what, what do you believe the jury's reaction to some of these uh, points made or points not made are? I don't, I'm not good at that. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I don't have any idea who's scoring the most points with the jury, but, but I think Patrick speaks to a lot of those people involved in, in the affairs. I mean, I, I know this. I know there are four or five people that have been to the courtroom every day that he communicates with. So I think he gives us a very interesting perspective. Bobby, he'll be with us hopefully tomorrow or Thursday if Trump had stayed president, what would we have done differently? That's an interesting um, question. Trump was there in the early days, made some mistakes. I mean, I've argued he blinked. Uh, the guy that never blinks, blinked. But what would it have looked like moving forward? Don't know. Uh, that's an interesting point, and we'll try to um, kind of debate that as best we as we can. Uh, Tanya J. Powers will be with us in about four minutes to discuss the Alec Murdoch trial. Back in a few. You know, South Carolina's got a reputation of being a bit rambunctious. I mean, I read a poll one day when you say secession, the two states to come to most Americans' mind is Texas and South Carolina. It's not fun to be in the news on a murder trial, especially something as horrific as a man being charged with killing his wife and adult kid. Um, I have become fixated. Rev knows this. I have eaten lunch every day in my truck for two weeks, so I don't miss <laughs> You know, the downloaded version, the live feed mm-hmm. of the Murdoch murder. And it's and it's interesting to me, Reb, because I went to the Gamecock baseball game um, Sunday. And uh, about all of the family pictures, they're at a USC athletic event. They're at a baseball game or a basketball game or, or the Final Four. Um, got two buddies of mine who sent me pictures of weddings they were in that Alec was in the wedding with them. So it's very real to us especially those of us who have rambled about in, in politics for a period of time. Um, the nation knows that it's Alex Murdoch. We know it is Alec Murdoch. Um, Tanya Powers is with us. Good morning, ma'am. How are you? Good morning. Yes, yes, it is Alec Murdoch, and it is. <laughs> uh, it, we've had a whole discussion on the pronunciation of this man's name uh, many times in our newsroom. So, yes, I, I'll, I should have just called you from the beginning and just got this straightened out. Well, Tanya, I went to the baseball game Saturday or uh, Sunday with uh, my wife, Tam Tam, and my daughter, Lib Lib, just in case. <laughs> Just in case you're um you're curious about how we I don't make light of that Tanya but but in all honesty I mean as, as I have tried to understand the the complexities of the case um it, it's almost like I believe whoever appeared last 
If the defense had a good moment, I don't believe he did it. If the prosecution had a good moment, I'm convinced he did. And and I guess America is in tune. I mean, I read some of the live feed numbers, and it's crazy how many people are interested in this case. What is the latest from your perspective, Tanya? You know what? I've been the same way. I, I've kind of been not shocked because it's a it's it's a it's a tragic, uh, you know, stunning story to start with. Um, you know, like you mentioned, I, th- I also think it is it is our current obsession with true crime. Think of all the podcasts that are out there on true crime and the specials and the series and everything else. It has just consumed people for a while. This is, you know, it is true crime at its best. It's, a, it's an actual court case. Um, the thing that's supposed to happen next, as you mentioned, uh, the defense rested yesterday. We understand the prosecution will call some rebuttal witnesses next. Uh, that's expected today. Then the uh, defense had asked the judge if they could take the jury out to the crime scene. Um, they wanted you know, the jury to see the feed room and the size of the feed room and then where uh, it was in relation to where Maggie's body was found and that kind of thing. Um, the judge said yes. The judge says normally if one side or the other requests a visit like that for the jury, they nor- he normally says yes um, to that so to that request. So that's expected after the prosecution finishes their rebuttal witnesses. Could be tomorrow. I don't know if they've set an, uh, a for sure date yet on that. Do we do we have a do we have a sense of how the um, the jury feels? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't see the jury. I mean, does does Fox News have anybody in the courtroom that has led you to believe the jury has reacted one way or another? I don't. I mean, I've talked to people who are in the courtroom. And, and Tanya, this goes back to the real-world perspective. Or I mean, being a native South Carolinian, um, when the cameras are rolling, I'm looking like, that's, that's Joe McCullough. You know, that's um that's Justin Bamberg. That's, uh, I mean, these are folks I know. But 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 I've not talked to anybody about what the reaction of the jury has been. Um, have you heard anybody say, how the jury has potentially responded. I have not. And my, my, my answer to, to you is going to be extremely Southern. Don't get me to line because uh, (laughs) (laughs) I do not know because I've seen, and there have been, there have been, you know, all kinds of reports about jury members crying and jury members reacting this way or the other. And then other people who are in the courtroom are like, no, that didn't actually happen. So it's real, it's real difficult to, to parse what is going on and you've probably been in in courtrooms for you know cases for it's really difficult to understand exactly the, the mood in the room and how the jury is taking things unless you're sitting in there with them um so that's i, I don't have a good answer for you let me put it that way um i think it's i think this is a fascinating case and i'm like you you know when yeah, these these lawyers are. I mean, Dick Harputley needs just just needs his own show. I think because it's fascinating to watch these guys cr- cross examine the other people. Him, Creighton Waters, the prosecutor, the whole nine yards. I mean, I would I would watch a show about about these two guys. I really would. And Netflix will probably give. Well, they already got a mini series out. I'm sure they'll follow yeah. it up, or, or or Hulu or Amazon or somebody will um will make mm-hmm. a documentary at some point in time. Thank you, Tony. Appreciate your time. Sure. You know, Rev, I was thinking about it yesterday. I actually talked with some lawyers yesterday about, um, you know, this scenario, that scenario, another um, scenario. Uh, you've not become quite as infatuated with it or fixated uh, with it as I have. But, True. Well, I mean, you've kept up with it. I'm sure of that. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I watched part. I started the miniseries over the weekend. 
and you any revelations? Well, in, 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 I, in the beginning, they they go through the boat crash and what led to that, and that's very difficult and emotional to sure. watch. I mean, it's very hard to watch, and and that's kind of where I've I've gotten into Netflix. Uh, but 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 here's here's what was offered to me yesterday as an alternative storyline. Um, what if Murdoch had gotten himself in such a place that a hit had to be made, and he had to be there to watch it? I mean, he got two. Right. Go- what if he had two killers? I mean, what, what if somebody called Alec Murdoch? I mean, I'm just playing once again hypothetical. I don't have any idea what happened. I mean, you don't. I don't. You believe something, and I'm talking to our listeners. You believe something. I believe something. Uh, I'm confused about this. I'm not as confused about that. I'm suspicious of this person. Um, he did a good job yesterday. They didn't do as good a job, you know, the last two hours. I would have asked that question. Well, they should have asked that question. I mean, that's. I guess that's the. Um, that's the way trials and prosecutions go. But but I've always wondered, um, because once again, uh, there there's a sensational flair about this story. I mean, it's um, it's old South aristocracy to some degree. Um, but but if you if you peel the onion back, I mean, I'm always one of these that says, okay, I mean, if he did this, what 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 about his makeup? Got him there. I mean, in other words, as, as much as I mean, I, I am a deeply flawed man. I mean, I really and truly am. I mean, there are things I've done that I am um, unbelievably regretful of. Wish I had never done, said, reacted, responded. I mean, my life is full of those things. Um, but I can't imagine something leading me to a place where I have to be involved. And I didn't say kill, but be involved in you know, my wife and child being murdered. Now, now I'm not accusing Alec Murdoch of anything. I don't know any of this. But but what if that is a scenario? What if one of the scenarios is because of his addiction, because of his lavish lifestyle, because of his um uh, his out-of-control spending, you know, that there, there's a multitude of things that could lead a human being to a place where you sit down and say, how in the world did I get here? I mean, how, you know, but, but, but here is bankruptcy. Here is divorce. Here is you know, a failure in business. Very few here I am is being accused of killing my wife and kid. Once again, there are a lot of people who get in trouble. There are a lot of people who do dumb stuff. There are a lot of people who, uh, what, what is the old story? Why, why do bad people do good things and good people do bad things? I, mean, there's, I think Larry said it um, last week, and I've always said there's relative good and bad. Ain't no angels in the world. I mean, we all, I mean, I'm not an angel. You aren't an angel. I mean, I'd like to believe there's more relative good to me than bad. But in some cases, Rev, there's more relative bad than good. And I think Murdoch's an example of more relative bad than good. Um, I don't think everything about Alec Murdoch is bad. I don't. I mean, I've seen him, you know, laugh a time or two. I've seen him, I think, honestly cry. Some people say, ah, oh, that's rehearsed. That's, that's not real. I don't know. I mean, it looks to me like uh, a few times during this trial, he has honestly, you know, c- kind of exposed himself. I mean, he's regretful. He is, um... He's, he's sad. He's remorseful. Not now that he killed his wife and kid. I don't know. Uh, It's obvious to me that at certain moments in this trial, he is deeply hurt by the fact that his wife and kid are gone. Now, now, did he kill them? I don't know. I don't have any idea if he did or not, but I think yesterday the defense did a pretty good job in initiating a question of whether or not someone else was there. Now, here's my point there, Bobby. Um, Bobby may agree or disagree. 
if Murdoch didn't kill his wife and kid, it's hard for me to believe he didn't know that there was a hit arranged and he was going to have to be a part of it. It's just hard for me to believe because, once again, we have so much information and data. The data says he was there. Remember, he lied about not being there. And then the video says you were there. So he confessed. I lied. I mean, I was not there. So in the um, in the condensed period of time that, that Paul and Maggie were killed, we know Alec was close by. I mean, there is no doubt about that. Did he have a gun in his hand? Don't know. Did he pull the trigger? Don't know. Did he stand and watch, you know, as a drug dealer shot and killed his wife and kid? Don't know. But the defense yesterday, to me, without saying it, offered that as an alternative. That, that you know, my client or the, I mean, I'm talking about some of these forensic experts, you know, the angle of the bullet, um, the, the, the spread of the shot and all these other sorts of things, you know, the 5-2 killer. Uh, you've heard that El Chapo, I guess, or, you know, it's kind of interesting. If I'm not mistaken, Harpootlian was involved in the PD, uh, the Wee Gaskins trial. Uh, and Wee was what, 5-3, five, 5-4? Five, I mean, I'm just saying there's some irony in all of this. And Dick's been around a long, long, long time. I'm um, not as a state senator, not as the chair of the DNC. Excuse me, the, um, yeah, it'd be the DSC, the Democrat State Committee. Uh, when I was lieutenant governor, Dick was the chair of the Democrat Party in South Carolina and highly effective. And, uh, and very colorful chair of the party. But I think yesterday, the state tried to argue, no, excuse me, the defense tried to argue that Alec Murdoch didn't kill his kid. He might have been there. I mean, there's no doubt he was close in proximity. When, when Maggie and Paul were killed, Alec wasn't on a cruise in the Bahamas. He wasn't at a USC football game. I mean, he was damn close by when they were killed. But did he pull the trigger or not? Remember Larry asked the question last week when I said, um, you know, whether he killed them or not, he's the reason they're dead. And Larry said, okay, Mr. Radio Show host, what about you saying something so careless, so irresponsible, so provocative, um, so stirring, so controversial that somebody would react to a way that hurts one of your, I mean, are you responsible for that? But, but I think there's de- de- degrees of uh, prov- uh, provoking someone to do, to do something. But, but I've got a lot of people in my world that believe there's no doubt he's responsible. There's no doubt he knew about it, but he didn't do it. And I don't know how you decide as a juror, you know, that man sitting in front of me, is the reason his wife and kid are dead. But that man sitting in front of me, I've not been convinced he did it. He was there. I mean, I think it's indisputable he was there. And and I got some other friends who say, that's not good enough for you? Really? He was there and said he wasn't? Three people were alive? Two minutes later, two weren't? I mean, mean, you're talking about a time frame. You know, in, in that time frame, we know this. It, at, at what, nine such and such and such and such, within a three-minute, uh, there, there were three people living. Then there were two people dead. That, that's pretty incriminating, unless there were two other people there to do a staged hit. I mean, you've nodded your head. Have you thought, yeah. About, yeah. Have you thought about that as an option and or an, alternative? Sure, and, and another ingredient that I learned watching the uh, first part of the documentary is I didn't realize this until they said there is a landing strip on that property where they fly planes in and out of. 
And to me, my mind just started thinking about what kind of things you can do with a private landing strip. You know, planes can come from anywhere. Well, I mean, the Netflix says uh, strippers and drugs. Yep. I mean, it was there to bring strippers in and drugs. Yep. Um, I mean, it, there, there's just a lot of, I don't know, it, it, it sounds like a uh, documentary. I mean, it sounds like a Netflix miniseries. It sounds like Ozark to me. And, and, and I, along with several others, agreed at the beginning, this could end up, you know, with some drug cartel or oligarch or business deal gone bad. I don't have any idea. But, um, but as of right now, I'm too confused to convict him of pulling the trigger. That's a weird way to explain it. I'm too confused by what could have happened to be sure of what did happen. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. You know, a lot of things we disagree on. We may disagree on what Alec Murdoch did or what he didn't do. One thing I think the majority of us can agree on, whether we're working for the state, whether we're working for a big company, whether we're an eat-what-you-gill kind of guy like yours, truly, health insurance is complicated and expensive. Real complicated, extremely expensive. It doesn't have to be that complicated. It doesn't have to be that expensive. We've met a guy named Christian Levis at Real Choice Healthcare. They have devised a plan with their company that saves you money. We're sure of that. No question about it. If you're reasonably healthy, you need to call Christian Levis um, and ask about some of the offerings he has. I'll give the number here in just a second, but but once again, um, it doesn't have to be a program chosen by the government. It can be a chosen program by you, managed by you. I mean, when you think about it, Rev, it's your health. It should be your choice, and real choice health care is, I think, the standard bearer in that realm of health care. Uh, if you're paying for your own health insurance, if you're reasonably healthy, if you're on a COBRA plan, if you're uninsured, you need to call Christian Levis at 864-362-4700, 864-362-4700, or go to the website, realchoicehealthcare.com, realchoicehealthcare.com. Once again, quality plans, quality management, not by the government, but rather by you. 843 843- Six six one zero nine three seven. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning. Yeah. Good morning, guys. I I think he's guilty. I mean, <laughs> that's my gut feeling. Anyway, whether he did it or what he was involved in caused him to be killed. But we were talking about China. You know, China was trying to uh, take over the world currency. And they were building all these big cities and all the investment and everything, and Trump kind of exposed that. Because I remember seeing the documentary of all these cities they were building that nobody was living in, and they're they're printing all this. You know, they manipulate their dollars just like we manipulate ours. And they were talking about how great they were, and then the Chinese people got to see all these cities that no one was looking, you know, no one was living in. And so then something had to happen to deflect away from that. And I think that's why they let that virus get out to take the rest of the world down because they let those people go into Italy to the factories and into Spain 
in France where they worked. And those are the, the countries that had it the worst to start with. And then they let them go to the United States. But every time there's a, a big catastrophe that goes on, it's preceded by something, some revelation. I remember Rumsfeld came out on September the 10th, remarkably, and said something like, uh, hey, guys, we're missing $2 trillion. And then 9-11 happened the next day. So you, I, I don't know what's going on with these people. They're, they say they can't cut nothing, but there, there's hundreds of billions of dollars of fraud, waste, and abuse in the PPP and the, the loan. And the, now he wants to give away all this. Joe Hardbreak, top of the hour. We'll be back in just a few. 843-661-0937. Dr. Will Bold is in studio. History chair, Francis Marion University. But someone's on the phone. Let's go there. It is Charles in Lamar. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. I don't know where to start. <laughs> uh, I've been, been real busy. was on vacation last week, and I haven't been able to call for a while. Dave, you were talking about the landing strip on the Murdoch property. Uh, that was used when the Bowwares owned that property. The Murdochs did not have an airplane, and they had pine trees growing on what was the runway at that time. If you get to the end of the Netflix special, and I watched the credits at the end, and the last scene before the credits begin, it tells you that Alec Murdoch turned his property, Moselle, into a commercial property and bought a $5 million liability policy on it in January of 2018. That is one month before Gloria Satterfield allegedly fell down the steps. So we may be looking at another first-degree murder case right there. Now, Ken, you and I have kind of talked about this back and forth off the air, but here's my thoughts on guilt or innocence. There were three people at the kennel at 8.44 p.m., and all three of them were alive. Five minutes later, not only had two of them been brutally murdered, but the third one denied having ever been there for 20 months. They're going to have to, I don't believe it's possible for them to introduce enough evidence to give me one iota of reasonable doubt. So, Charles, you you wouldn't even consider, uh, and you and I have talked about that, you wouldn't even consider two people there waiting on Alec, Maggie, and Paul he is a part of the setup, but potentially didn't pull the trigger. Is that something you would even consider? Sure, I'll consider it. What difference does it make? He, gets, he committed first-degree murder. If he set up the meeting, if he stood there and watched, if he was one of the two shooters, or if he did it by himself, he's guilty of first-degree murder. Fair enough. That's just, that's just my opinion. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. Hey, you know, do the same, sir. Um, and, I, and I'll say this, Rev. See, I don't know. I mean, if this is a weird way. I mean, this is such a, a lousy way to look at it. What have we done for the last couple of months? We talked about behind door number one is Twitter and the FBI. Behind door number two is um, Hunter and Joe Biden. Behind door number three is COVID. Well, I mean, we found out yesterday that behind door number, you know, the COVID origin is probably more likely to be where the conspiracy theorists said it was. Um, mm-hmm. Now, those conspiracy theorists also say and pump the brakes in, in Ukraine, but we're conspiracy theorists. What do we know? I mean, don't take anything we say seriously. 
Uh, let's use that same analogy. Behind door number one is Alec Murdoch pulling the trigger and brutally killing his wife and kid. Behind door number two is Alec Murdoch involved in a setup because of some decision he made relating to money and business and drugs and whatever. I mean, whatever is involved in that. And he had to be a part of, you know, a hit, a, uh, a contract killing. Those are the only two doors I've got. I mean, I, I don't know of a door number three. And, and you know, is, I mean, if, if once again, I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt, let's use legal language, that, that Alec Murdoch is the reason his wife and kid are dead and were brutally murdered. I do believe that there's two doors there. And I think behind one is him pulling the trigger himself in the most cold-blooded, brutal fashion imaginable. I mean, that, that psychopath, that sociopath, that's monster. I mean, that's every, that's, that's, um, you know, Gacy and, and Dahmer. I mean, that, that's just a, I mean, that's a sick, sick, sick person that would do that to their, to their wife and kid. The, the other is, I mean, it's, it's no less brutal. It's no less tragic. It's no less, you know, him being a part of killing someone, but, but, and that's where I get concerned or confused would be a better word. Um, if I'm on the jury, and I've got this struggle about, did he pull the trigger or, or was he involved in some sort of contract killing, some sort of hit? Um, who do I ask if I'm on the jury? I mean, do I go to the judge and say, judge, here's, here's where I am. I mean, I don't think there's any question he's the reason they're dead. And I, be, I don't want to be a part of letting him walk free from a murder charge. But, but I'm not convinced. I mean, how can I rationalize? I mean, we don't have jury helplines. I mean, there ain't 1-800-I-need-help. From the jury pool, I mean, we don't we don't allow that. You see where I'm headed? Yeah. But but if yeah. I were on the jury, and um, I mean, odds are I'd be the foreman. You know that. But I mean, if I weren't, <laughs> oh, if, if, of course, if, if I weren't, because I know everything. Yeah. But if I weren't the foreman, I mean, who do I go to with, with that concern? With with that with that plea? Um, does that make sense? Yeah. That there's not even a door saying. number three. You're right. That there's there there is no scenario. So convict. I think that's what Charles is saying. Yeah. I mean, Charles is, I don't want to put words in Charles's mouth. Charles is basically saying, I don't care if you pull the trigger or not. It's your fault. I mean, he's the reason they they were brutally murdered, and that's good enough for me. And, and I get that. I, I certainly understand that. But but technically, technically, I'm there to decide whether he pointed a gun, pulled the trigger, killed his wife and kid. But, um, but I don't know of a door number three. I mean, I don't know of an alternative storyline i don't know of an alternative um option that you know that to me that's it either i mean it, it, charles is exactly right there's no way he's not there i mean that that's unavoidable i mean the, the evidence clearly shows that three people were alive and then two weren't he's there but was a contract killer hiding in the feed room was a contract killer hiding behind the kennel that's where my confusion and concern um, comes from. Let me ask you this, Rev, and then we'll go to Dr. Bolt. I don't want to get a professor in the hook on this craziness. He'll lose this job. So if you're on the jury, and I want you to be level, I mean, be gut level honest with me, Rev. Um, if you're on the jury and you're trying to rationalize between those two options and you, you aren't sure which one of those two is real, but you know it's one or the other, do you convict? Oh. Hell yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I imagine that the judge is going to be very specific in what they're making the decision ah, on, right? But, but it's, it's my discretion. Right. I mean, it's my right. job as a juror, 
And, and, and if you and, believe it's his fault, regardless of who was who pulled the trigger, if you have if you have a slight doubt that somebody else might have been there and pulled the trigger or one of the triggers, do you convict? Yeah, because they didn't do it for giggling and kicks. I mean, they they did it because there was some relationship that he had. It's his fault. It, that's exactly right. I mean, he's the reason that they are um that they're dead. Do we have a call? Okay, we, we don't have a call. Let's okay. go to Doctor Bolt. Um, hey, shift gears. Go away from the Murdoch. Have you kept up with the trial? Just. Uh, when it all started, I knew at the beginning, there's no way I can wrap my head around all. There were just so, so, so many layers. And my, my wife and I kind of realized that we're one of the few people that just aren't heavily involved. Our Sunday school class, we spent most of the time talking about it. My wife and my wife, who has the gift for Gab, was one of the few times she was kind of just kind of quiet. And somebody asked her, are, are you okay? I was like, well, we just haven't been following it uh, too much. So it's it, it's fascinating. I'm just once it's once the dust settles, just think of all the documentaries, the the, the cheesy movies, the the Law and Order spinoffs. I mean, just all of. Well, I mean, and it plays into the Southern narrative, you know, right. the, 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 the 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 aristocratic old South, the, yes. the the moss hanging from the live oaks. I mean, you know what I mean? These these guys do whatever they want to do, and they're not held accountable. I mean, it is. I mean, there, there's so many tentacles. Yes, that's a good to way this to, to this story. Good way. To we put were it. talking during the break, and I want to get your take on this. You're a historian. I'm not. Um, but I know everything. Um, <laughs> the United States has been in 251 military interventions between 91 and 2023. The reason I use 91, that's the end of the Cold War. Yeah. From 1798 to 1990, we were in only 218. Yeah. What, what, what serious military um, incursions were we involved in prior to the Civil War? In early American history, walk me through some of the military. I mean, obviously, the Revolutionary War. Right, Let's go one. from there to the Civil War and talk about American military. We have two actual declared wars. We have the War of 1812, obviously fought against the British, sort of our second war for independence. Uh, then you have the Mexican-American War, uh, which is actually the United States. We wanted California and wanted to buy it at first. Mexico didn't want to give it to us, so we maybe provoked a war, if you will. Uh, but, of course, got all of the Southwest as a result of it. Uh, you have some sort of incursions, one of the most famous ones. Uh, the Seminole Indians were in Florida in the 18-teens. Uh, they would cross into Georgia, and the Georgia militia would pursue them, but couldn't follow them back into Spanish Florida. So the army is sent to the border, and the army at this time was under the command of none other than Major General Andrew Jackson. And so Jackson chases after the Seminoles. They get to the, the Florida line, and they say, Nanny, 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 you can't catch me. And Jackson, it takes him all of two seconds. He says, oh, yeah. And so Jackson takes the United States Army into Spanish Florida, uh, destroys the Seminoles wherever he can, eventually finds two British citizens who he believed were aiding uh, the Seminoles, has a mock trial, uh, convicts them, and sentences both of them to death, and says, all right, we're going to shoot both of you guys. And so one of his officers says, no, 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 General, it would be a bad idea if you shot both of them. And Jackson says, ah, you know what, you're right. Let's hang one and let's shoot the other. So you have an American general executing two British citizens on Spanish soil. It creates a huge international crisis. Uh, everybody in Washington, D.C. has their hair on fire. The British, the Spanish, are getting ready to attack the United States. Uh, the one guy who keeps his cool, the Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, says to the Spanish, let the United States buy Florida from you, or we'll have Andrew Jackson take Florida from you. 
and the Spanish say sold. And so this is how we acquire uh, Florida. Who authorized, I think I know the answer to this, who gave Jackson permission to do what he did? Jackson's orders were very, very vague. They came from the president and the secretary of war, John C. Calhoun. Again, Jackson put the spin on it that he wanted to. I mean, unless there was expli- unless they explicitly told him not to go into Florida. That's the only way. And so there was sort of a, a little bit of a vagueness, and Jackson, of course, took that to his advantage. Jackson would have probably gone all the way to Cuba. And you think of how different American history would have been if the United States and Andrew Jackson took Cuba in 1819-1820, but Jackson's old dueling wound uh, from 1806 when he had a bullet right next to his heart uh, was causing him trouble, and so he had to call off the campaign. Let's go back to 1812. Were there any overlapping of leadership from the Revolutionary War to the War of 1812? Or was out of the old guard kind of in with the new guard? brand new. Most of the old guys were simply old and retired by that time. And so this this is why we went to war. Most of the guys had missed their chance. They were too young to fight in the revolution. They needed a chance to prove their mettle, their manhood. What instigated the War of 1812? Well, lots of things. The British simply didn't respect American neutrality. Uh, The British were stopping American ships on the high seas and then forcing American sailors to serve in the British Navy. This was the policy of impressment in the United States. We protested against this, and the British said, well, we're fighting Napoleon. We need our Navy is our saving grace. We need men for the Navy. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, this is what we call a tough break. And so this went on for several years. And finally, uh, many Americans said enough is enough. Uh, the British were also arming Native Americans in the frontier. And so oftentimes you'd have these little confrontations and the Native Americans would always carry off their dead and they take the supplies with them. But at the Battle of Tippecanoe in 1811 in Indiana, It was a huge victory for the United States, such a rout that when the American soldiers were able to survey the field, they found all the the dead Native Americans, but also saw they were armed with the British Enfield rifles. And this was the the smoking gun, if you will. But but surely, Dr. Bode, it would have been differently. So in in the Revolutionary War, there was no America. Thirteen colonies. Sure. I mean, so, so, so where are we as a nation in 1812? Is John Quincy Adams our president? No, no, you've got uh, James Madison. Okay, that's what I meant to say, James Madison. So Madison's the president. Um, who who are making the big decisions on behalf uh, of, a, of a new nation? I mean, once again, the Revolutionary War is the founding of a nation. Yeah. Um, the second um, confrontation with British rule was after we were solidified sure. as an independent and sovereign nation. And again, this is one of those few times that it was a, a members of Congress. They were called the Warhawks. A lot of young guys from the South and West, Henry Clay, John C. Calhoun of South Carolina. Calhoun was the hawkish of the hawks. Absolutely right. And so again, these guys were very, very aggressive. They wanted to take... Uh, lands in the southeast. They wanted to take Canada uh, for the United States of America. Madison didn't want this. Madison's the the good old Jeffersonian, but Madison's a smart enough politician to realize which way the winds are blowing, that support for war is strong, so I better get out in front of it. It will help me politically. So Madison changes his tune and says, oh, yeah, yeah, let's let's go to war against the Brits, and so got out in front of it. So we were, I want to be careful here. You ready, Rev? Uh We we were expansionist? At that I time, mean, in, our, in our early days, I mean, we were. I mean, isn't that kind of what we're complaining <laughs> about? Putin and Russia and some of the um, some of the Soviet yeah. creep. I mean, our, you see where I'm headed. No, they, they wanted to expand. I mean, expand here's expand what boundaries. I said earlier. I want to get your take on this. You're a historian. I'm not. So, <laughs> so in 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 war and foreign affairs, there is always relative good, relative bad. I mean, there are no angels involved <laughs> in this. 
Um, Jackson had a certain perspective. Um, Calhoun's had a certain perspective. But the majority of early American leadership was very interventionist in nature. Well, we always like to think of Washington having this sort of isolationist mentality. But again, once you sort of get to this next round, uh, and a lot of these guys are, they consider themselves the ideological heirs of Thomas Jefferson. But Jefferson was a pacifist. Exactly right. He hated the military, hated uh, of violence and stuff like this. And again, this, this next wave, the guys like Calhoun, and the list is almost endless of all these young So how Warhawks. did they square that up with Jefferson? I mean, if Jefferson was for a very limited military, I mean, he wanted cannons on boats. Right, that was the canoes kind of, sort of. I mean, um, so, so when did the, the, the evolution of American government leadership become as hawkish as it was? I mean, I knew the story of 1812. That's why I'm asking yeah. you. But you give such an historical accounting. That was a very hawkish period in American yeah. um, foreign policy. And doesn't go away. And by it, Jefferson again, and when Jefferson was president, the British actually fired on a ship. Uh, they attacked the USS Chesapeake in American waters. And the, the flag was fired upon. Everybody was calling for war. And Jefferson said, no, nah, uh, we're just going to put an embargo. And so we're going to try and bring the British to the, t to the table, to the bargaining table, to negotiate this peacefully. It didn't work, and most Americans simply said, they don't respect us. They're bullying us. We've got to speak to them in a language they understand, and that language is, of course, force. And so it's, you don't have the war until Jefferson is out of office. So if someone asked you as an early American history to compare and contrast what Russia is doing in Ukraine and what we did in our in our early days as a nation, I mean, obviously different time frame. There are nuclear yeah. weapons and aircraft carriers and <laughs> and F-16s, but is there a similar mindset there? What was was early America expansionist in nature? I think this was even Jefferson, of course, the Louisiana Purchase. And Jefferson wants us: the more land we have, it's easier for to to be this nation of farmers. But that was not a military incursion, correct? I mean, that that no, would have no, been no. a right. I mean, that, that was, was a purchase of just land, made of land. Yep, exactly. But again, this was, hey, this all fits into the Jeffersonian idea. Uh, we've got to expand the country. Jefferson wants us to be a nation of farmers. The farmer is the only guy who's free. If you let the Hamiltonian vision, everybody's going to be these working class dependent, stuck in these factories, trapped in a cycle of debt. You're going to have this rampant corruption like you've got over in Europe. Uh, as long as you keep expanding, keep expanding territory, you keep this Jeffersonian ideal alive. Well said. Let's take a break. We'll be back. In just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Early American history was full of a pacifist named Jefferson and a bunch of warmongers, a bunch of hawkish uh, political leadership. And I just tried to illustrate, and I'm not, look, guys, I do believe this with every fiber of my being. In matters of war and foreign invasion, there are no angels. I mean, it's all relative good, relative bad. I think the history of America is relatively good. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, we've contributed probably more to the advancement of humankind than any governmental experiment ever, ever. Dr. Bolt shaking his head. Oh, I think yeah, he absolutely. would agree Slam with dunk, that. Yeah. But it ain't been perfect. And, and I think some of the criticisms we're levying at Putin and Russia, and in the early days of our nation, we were pretty expansionist in our um, aggressive pursuit of more land and more influence. Let's go to the phone. William in McCall. Good morning. How you do, Dave? Ken? Uh, you know, you're right on the history. But the Native Americans, they went on and furthered their life and done good and no rioting, none of this 
reparations or none of this here, you know, and history's been good. Like you said, we've got bad things. We still got bad things going on right now. So it's still in a, a progress that we got to work on and get uh, everybody on the same page. Like a lady said on post on Facebook, they went on a cruise ship. Everybody on that cruise ship got along good, happy, all kind of different religions, all kind of different nominations, some ever word. They want no no hard feelings toward nobody. And that's what the United States has got to get back to. God, love of this country. Thank you, William. Appreciate that. Let's go back to some of the um the Native Americans. Okay. Um, walk me through some of the most friendly political leadership toward the Native Americans and those that weren't so friendly to Native Americans. Well, most of the presidents in Jackson's policy of Indian removal, you can you can trace it back to Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson kind of put a lot of these wheels in motion. Maybe the only friend early on for the Native Americans was John Quincy Adams, who Indian removal was kind of, he's the president right before Jackson. John Quincy Adams kind of tried to stop but gum up the wheels, if you will. He serves just four years. Jackson defeats him in a landslide. And then Jackson, once he's president, Jackson's biggest legislative accomplishment, Jackson's a very good president, remodeled the president. Most of what he recommended to Congress, Congress said, nah, they watered it down. Jackson's biggest legislative accomplishment is the Indian Removal Act, which gives the national government the power to uh, relocate Native Americans west of the, the Mississippi River. And most of the Native Americans, the Choctaws, the Creeks, knew you, you, you don't fight Andrew Jackson. Uh, the Cherokees, of course, in Georgia decided to fight him through the courts. Uh, they actually won a Supreme Court case, and Andrew Jackson famously says, uh, John Marshall, he's the chief justice. John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. And Jackson knew that the Supreme Court, they don't have a police force. And so Jackson has a very nice, well-written opinion, Mr. Marshall. Am I going to enforce it? Absolutely not. So what was the, were there any Native American sympathizers? In government. Oh, you, Who it, were they? When, when you had the, the debate over any removal, uh, you had a lot of guys. There was a guy by the name of Theodore Freelinghausen uh, from a prominent family in New Jersey. Up until recently, there was always a, a Freelinghausen in Congress from New Jersey. Uh, he was a Christian missionary and claimed that any removal, what the government was proposing, this isn't what a, a civilized nation does. And there was, again, lots of opposition to this in the North, but this is where Jackson, the politician, squeezes, calls in some favors, plays the art of patronage. And when he looks at the role and says, hey, I, I, it looks like you're going to vote against this. I, I see your brother has a federal job. It would be unfortunate if he lost that job. So again, Jackson knew how to put the screws uh, to the guys and put the pressure on them to get it through. When you talk about the Indian removal aspect of, of Jackson's mindset, his, his um, governing philosophy, what did Jackson want for the Indians, the Native Americans? Jackson is, uh, woke historians would say Jackson committed a genocide. Sure. And Jackson's certainly just there. They're standing in the way of progress. Some of the lands in Is there any credence to that argument? I mean, you're talking about woke historians. I get that. Is there any credibility to the argument that what Jackson wanted to do in in the Native uh, American removal, the Indian Removal Act, was genocide? I don't think Jackson intended it. I don't think he lost any sleep, though, in the end when it all happened. And then this fits into the Jackson's big vision. Jackson wants to help out the common man, uh, the, the common white man. And so you've got all this lush, fertile land in Georgia. Uh, you can grow cotton on it. Uh, there's rumor that there'd be lots of gold on it as well. 
And so these Native Americans, unfortunately, were standing in the way of what Jackson considered to be the inevitable march of progress of the United States. A civilized nation shouldn't be blocked or stymied by a group of Native Americans. And so Jackson puts the wheels in motion. The thing we oftentimes forget is that the actual tragedy of the Trail of Tears takes place once Jackson has left office. It's his his successor, Martin Van Buren, who was in charge of overseeing it. He appropriated the contracts, and it was the contractors who said they were going to provide the Native Americans with food, blankets, and articles to sustain them on the march, uh, took the money and ran. And Van Buren said, well, march them anyways. Why didn't anybody try to incorporate American Indians, or excuse me, Native Americans, into the American culture? Well, this was just the an old mentality that had sort of been hung around for ever since the colonial days, that they were the other, they were they were different, they were the enemy. And again, early on from the first contact, uh, lots of... But, conf- but back up, I'm going to interrupt sure. you, and I'm sorry for that. You're, you're okay. So, so, so they looked at Native Americans as the enemy, based on what? Well, again, as soon as, as we got, the earliest colonists arrived, there were oftentimes confrontations uh, going all the way back uh, to Jamestown, 1619. This is a, a trend in American history from the early 1600s that really isn't resolved until you get to 1890 in Wounded Knee. There's almost a constant perpetual conflict throughout American history, certainly after the Civil War on the Plains, and then finally a, a tragic ending uh, at Wounded Knee in 1890. It's, it's, it's a common theme, north and south, east and west. So, so the American experiment includes slavery of African Americans, and a, and a, a dis I don't I don't what am I trying to say here a dislocation of Native Americans simultaneously. I mean, no, un- they, unfortunately, yeah, you're you're, you're you're sounding pretty liberal there. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to get to the. I mean, I, I, what I'm willing to do is express um, my disappointment right. in, in the way America handled certain things. There, I mean, there I, are some failures for uh, sure. Sure, you okay, cannot okay. Deny but, it. but I, I want to better understand this. I want our listeners to better understand this. So, so th- th- there is a conversation America's having about the um, the slave industry, the slave trade. I mean, th- th- there are serious conversations and political debates about what to do with the African-American slave, correct? Oh, for, I mean, for it, sure. I mean, it culminates in a, in a civil war, yeah. and we know the history there. Yeah, 40, 50 but, years but I mean, even, even around um, the early 1800s, I mean, there, there's many writings and speeches given by political leaders debating. I mean, Jefferson um, wrote a lot about slavery, uh, the, the abolishment of slavery or not. So, so was it, was there a consistent mindset of, of white leadership in, in newfound America relating to the slaves, African-Americans and the, the abolishment of Indians, the, the, the removal of Indians and the placement of Indians onto separate property? No, slavery was of course very, very profitable and every part of the country is complicit in it. All of the slave ships were built out of New England. Okay, so, so stop there, because I think this is so interesting. So the economy required slave labor. Where all the all the textile sure. mills and, are and, up and, in the New agra- and the agrarian economy. I mean, you sure. know, the farming and um so so the, the Native American was not involved in the slave trade. Therefore no, no, fundamentally looked at differently. Yeah, correct? Yeah. I mean is that a fair assumption? No, after- I, mean, I, I made this assumption not being in the presence of an historian. I'm in the presence of a historian now. So, so the, ah, the realities of slavery were very economically driven. Yes, the realities of the Indian, uh, were, were the native American were more, uh, less economic right, and they're, more, they're just an annoyance. They're, they're in the way. And after Indian removal, after Jackson, 
the Native American problem essentially goes away until after the Civil War when we start moving west of the Mississippi. And then we bump into them again, and then there's a whole new round of conflicts. But for the 1840s, the 1850s, you don't have much related to Native Americans. Okay, you open this door. We basically forced the Indians out west, correct? Mm -hmm. When we began settling the territory out west, we forced them a little further out west. It's a constant theme. Did we deal with the Native Americans differently the second time than we did the first time? Was there any... I hate to say this, were, were we coming to grips with what we did as an inclusive and inviting society? Because once again now, there's a there's a Declaration of Independence that says, famously, all men all are created, created equally. Um, we ain't holding up our end of the bargain <laughs> with the slave trade, but many would argue that was economic. I mean, that, yeah. that was, you know, we had a very complicated, we really had a very simple economy that required slave labor. But but when we're, when we're, when we're operating in the name of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, and we deal with the Indians the way we did. Help, help me, did, did, did we not have some sort of national struggle with, with that political reality? No, if you look at after the Civil War, you passed three amendments for African Americans, ending slavery, uh, granting them citizenship, getting them the right to vote. Native Americans don't get the right to vote until 1924. I mean, they wow. are sort of just sort of, and again, after the Civil War, a lot of your, your Yankee Civil War generals who are victorious took a lot of the lessons they learned fighting against the South, and you now turn them and use them against Native Americans on the plains. You, know, you, you don't fight these set-piece battles. Destroy the villages. Destroy the livestock. Destroy their food. You know, total psychological warfare, if you will. And you got nowhere else to push them, so you round them up, you put them into reservations, and that way you contain them and kind of keep an eye on them. And you're right. We passed numerous articles of legislation empowering the African-Americans more than they'd ever been empowered. We didn't do that to the Native until, Americans. Until 1924, the Snyder Act. Okay, but but what politician, what elected official, I guess, was brave enough to to change certain legislation um, affecting or impacting the African, excuse me, the um, the uh, Native Americans? You had, you had the Dawes Act, essentially, which tried to essentially assimilate them, almost force Christianity on them. And the argument was, all right, if you sort of embrace American values, it will be better for you. So abandon all your ancestral ways and you'll be a part of the gentleman's club, if you will. And some Native Americans said, we've been resisting for generations. Where's it gotten us? And others said, no, we're not going to give up uh, our old ways. And so finally, again, it's 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 not until 1890 really that resi- is essentially broken. And you realize that the government is going to essentially impose and force its views on you if you're a Native American. Did anybody negotiate on the Native Americans' behalf? Some of these negotiations between the federal government and, and Indian leadership. I mean, is there any famous negotiators associated with Native Americans? I'm sure you probably had some, some maybe some lobbyists or people maybe behind the scenes, but never reached a point of critical mass where you've had newspaper stories, editors calling for What do you make rights. of that, Dr. Bolt? Well, it's just, that we have a very uh, debated issue with slavery in the African-Americans, and we don't do that with the Native Americans. Why, why has, here's a fair way to ask it, why is, why, have the na- why has the issue with our government Native Americans been relegated to somewhat of a footnote in American history? Yeah, well, the winners get to write the history. And again, they would try to stop and oppose us in many ways. Uh, many of them picked the wrong horse. They sided with the British, both in the Revolution and the War of 1812. They crossed swords with Andrew Jackson. Uh, uh, they called him Sharp Knife because the Native Americans do. When Jackson cut you, uh, he cut you pretty deep. And so, again, they just uh, 
And winners get to write the history. They were on the wrong side of a lot of these. And just, you're right, history has not been very kind to them, unfortunately. And you would agree that that one, one of the original, I don't want to say sins, one of the original mistakes that the Indians made was siding with the British in the Revolutionary War? I mean, the majority of Native Americans fought alongside uh, right. the, the British infantry. And if they didn't fight, they were certainly provided them intelligence, uh, acting as couriers for them, scouts, if you will. And so, right, old failings uh, die pretty hard. Well said. Thank you, sir. Hey, have a good That's week, kind guys. of an interesting subject. We rambled about there a bit, but got to the bottom of what I intended to, that there's quite the different history written in regards to the treatment of African-Americans and the treatment of Native Americans. But Dr. Bolt at the end got to the bottom of it. The Native Americans chose the wrong horse about three times consecutively <laughs> in very, very, very early American history. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Isn't that a pretty fair illustration, though, of... um. I mean, some of the historical analysis of America. I mean, we're, we're real good. And, and I, I sound unpatriotic and I sound um, not as devoutly dedicated to the American dream and experiment, but, but I am. I just think it's, um, I think the patriotic thing to do is be sincere and be honest and accept that we've made some pretty dramatic mistakes in our, in our past. Um, I think it's very interesting that Dr. Bolt would walk you through. I mean, we have a very known and chronicled um, episode in American history with African-Americans. I don't think we have as known and chronicled an episode with Native Americans. Um, the Native Americans fought alongside the British in the Revolutionary War and 1812. And um, there was retribution. See, no question about it. There was revenge taken. Um, so some of the Native American... Um, I mean, it, it was, it was a, and a kind of an interesting and very violent relationship very early on, um, in American history. But I think we very often Rev, we cleanse ourselves in, in a way that, uh, should I say this? We don't deserve, I mean, we've been a messy experiment, I mean, there is no doubt about it that we have contributed far more to mankind than any other nation in our planet, but, but we've not been perfect. We've gotten a lot of things wrong in days gone by. And, and I think it's pretty arrogant of modern-day America to suggest, um, and I'm talking about government in general, and I'm, let's talk neoconservatism. If you listen to a neocon, it's, it's, um, it's if America doesn't do this. It's almost like America comes from this um, indisputable place. I mean, if America says this is what needs to happen, then the world just needs to fall in line. And I think the world has a right to say, whoa, whoa, America, let's talk about some of your transgressions some of your misgivings, um, some of your sordid past. I'm not defending Putin by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not defending Xi by any stretch of the imagination. But we, I say wait, many Americans kind of have the mindset, they've been convinced by the cleansing of American history that, that China's bad, Russia's bad, and we're good. Well, well, I believe, relatively speaking, that's true. I do. I think what America's offered the world is far more beneficial to mankind than what China has, than what Russia has. But but I think to suggest to anybody that every Chinese plea is baseless, that that every Russian concern is without foundation, is 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 just. I mean, to me, that's very unpatriotic. I mean, that's that's blind loyalty, and, and blind loyalty and blind faith in your leadership is. Um, I mean, that that'll that'll destroy more than questioning authority, trying to better understand. Um, history. How, how does America integrate itself into, um, you know, global history, world history? Um, I mean, we're the 800-pound gorilla today, but we haven't always been, and I don't know that we'll always be. 
the 800-pound um, gorilla. But but our early history sounds eerily similar to what's happening in Ukraine um, today. And I'm not defending Russia from invading Ukraine. I would never defend um, Vladimir Putin. But but I do think it's a lot more complicated than we're led to believe. And when I see the you know the um the Facebook post or the bumper sticker or the uh you know the um the Twitter account that has the Ukraine stand with Ukraine, whatever it takes. But that's silly. That's nonsense. I mean, if we've reduced ourselves to that, then we'll get exactly what we deserve. And that is, in my kid's lifetime, we won't be the preeminent superpower on the planet. I mean, what do you mean, whatever it takes? I stand with Ukraine. I mean, I know we live in a sound body age and era. And I know, um, you know, we, we kind of drink the Kool-Aid of, uh, w- w- you know, the latest and greatest flavor, whatever flavor of the day it is, you know, give me a double dose of that. And, and I, I just kind of chuckle when I see the screenshots and, and I see the, the Twitter accounts with the Ukrainian flag. I stand with Ukraine, whatever it takes. I mean, the, 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 to me, that's so unserious and childish, and it reeks of you buying into something um, that you should more carefully consider. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, last hour of this morning. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. David in the PD. Morning, David. Hey, good morning. Uh, Ken, remember we had this discussion about I-95 um, back at the first of the year, and um, I think uh, we made a comment or something, the world's coming to Walterboro. You know, the interesting thing about um, that conversation with, you had with the professor there is that, you know, there's a lot of Canadians that come through this state, and guess whose side they were on in the War of 1812? Continue. They were on the British side. So this shows you, you were getting back into the Native Americans and that which side they were on. They were on the, so this shows you how these little border wars work out. And kind of, you got Tanya J. Power. She's from New York City. She knows all about this thing down there in in Walterboro. And I was thinking about uh, Murdoch. Now, can you've been to that old Sarge Fry Field, hadn't you? I have. Back back in the day, so you know, I, I, he he grew up sort of like us, and I'm gonna tell you how he didn't grow up like us. But he played two A football. He went to the University of South Carolina, and I, I feel sorry for a lot of those folks down there that live down there in Hampton. Part of what uh, he has has to deal with, I, I've dealt with it. You know, your dad's in the hospital. You got to go all the way to Savannah to visit him. Um, I think Maggie that day. Of that whole thing, uh, she had been in Charleston. She had to go to Charleston to go to a specialist. Uh, before the weekend before, they went to a baseball game in Columbia. So you better have a doggone good car if you live in those type places. But uh, here's what's different about all this is that I call it, God, I hate to say this, I call it the litigation plantation. I mean, these cats live in this world where they're bringing all these cases to them. And how is their wealth produced? It is this litigation plantation. And what's so interesting to me about this is how a lot of this world down there works in that you the lawyers from those neighboring counties turn kind of turned on him. That probably that probably you know got got under his skin. But how how can you um survive or, or make a, a, a prospering area? Uh Without manufacturing, without, and I'll give Florence credit, 
I mean, if I had a problem right now, I could go to the hospital within 10 minutes. That's a, that's a big selling point of Florence. But you don't live in these little areas that you've got nothing going on but this little uh, fiefdom slash fiefdom of these attorneys. So I, I'll leave you at that. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. That is a courtroom that many of us are paying close attention to. Uh, the courtroom in Colleton County with the Alec Murdoch case. Um, I'm only in South Carolina to pronounce A-L-E-X-M-U-R-D-A-U-G-H is Alec Murdoch. But um, right. you know, I mean, even in um, certain regions of South Carolina, you pronounce it differently. But but it is, I mean, th- th- there's some reality to that litigation plantation that, um, that David's talking about. Um, it is a very distressed area of South Carolina, but it's in close proximity to one of the most affluent areas in South Carolina, and that would be the coast of Charleston, Hilton Head, Beaufort, um, Kiowa Island. It, it, it's, it's very unusual, a little bit like Georgetown County. When you get to Litchfield and Pauley's, you're like, wow, okay, this is Georgetown County. And then you ride 10 minutes and go, no, this is, is Georgetown County. The coast of South Carolina, I mean, I'm not going to compare it to some of the resort cities in Mexico, but there's some similarities there. The, I mean, when you go to the coast of South Carolina, you're like, wow, I mean, there's some pretty opulent homes and high levels of affluency. And I'm talking about migrating into South Carolina, and then you leave there and drive 10 miles inland or 10 minutes inland, and you're like, wow, this can't be uh, the same county and community. But another courtroom that the nation's paying very close attention to is our nation's Supreme Court as the president of the United States is um, uh, asking to forgive student debt. Um, the court, the Supreme Court will eventually decide whether it's constitutional or not, uh, Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is in our nation's capital. Ryan, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, Mr. Lieutenant Governor. I'm good. And uh, South Carolina, you know, lawyers are really getting a lot of attention these next couple of days, aren't they? Yeah, we'd rather it be something other than a murder trial, but it it, it is <laughs> what it is. Uh, I, I think yeah. Strom, Strom Thurmond always said, you know, any publicity is good publicity. I don't know that I, I totally agree with that. But But back to the task at hand, this is a big deal. I mean, you got student debt um, exceeding one and a half trillion dollars. You got some of it default deferment, delayed payment. Now the president wants to forgive a certain amount of student debt. The courts will decide, Ryan, what do we know? What do we expect? Where do we go from here? Oh, yeah. Well, well, my reference to South Carolina and lawyers was also because South Carolina is going to be one of the six states that's represented in this in this legal case that we're going to be hearing today. Uh, and so so some of the arguments that the, that the conservative states involved in the lawsuit are, are kind of making is that, you know, President Biden issued an executive overreach when he went through with the student loan plan and that this is something that has to have approval from Congress. And if you think back, you know, that's something that Nancy Pelosi once said at one of her press conferences, that if President Biden wanted to forgive student loans, he was going to need the help of Congress to do so. Uh, But then you have the Biden administration saying that due to the COVID national emergency and the HEROES Act of 2003, uh, the president has the power to make changes to student loans to student loan plans. Uh, and ultimately, that's going to be what we're going to hear today, uh, as well as a couple other different arguments out there. Ron, we know this court is probably culturally and socially more conservative. Uh, we talk about a lot about the number of Catholics on the court. Roe v. Wade has been overturned. Is there any leaning or bias that, that leads you to believe they'll side one way or another? I mean, there's no doubt this is a more socially conservative court than in recent history. This is not a social or cultural issue. Is there is there any opinion out there that you pay close attention to 
that leads you to believe the court will decide one way or another? Well, well, I think certainly any legal analyst would point you to the fact that simply it is a six to three conservative court that that might give the the, the Republican states challenging this policy uh, an advantage in that regard. But then there's also uh, different documents that that have been brought up. You know, there there was one recently that where uh, people pointed out that Clarence Thomas brought up student loans as an issue uh, a couple of decades ago. So certainly, you know, just because it's a six to three conservative court doesn't mean that they're going to side with the with the Republican-led states, certainly they, they, they've kind of uh, done that in the past and before. So, you know, certainly you have to think that they have an advantage here, the, 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 the states challenging the Biden administration, but that is not a for sure thing. That's, I believe so. Well explained. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jeff in Florence. Morning, Jeff. Good morning, guys. How you doing? Hey, Jeff. Hey, uh, so I've been listening this morning, and I don't know if you talked about it, but I wanted to talk about the Dominion lawsuit and the revelations about Fox News. I read a little bit about that in the National Review yesterday. Not a lot, but I did read a little bit about it. Have at it. So you didn't, yeah, you, you didn't. So have you seen the transcripts where, you know, Rupert Murdoch uh, acknowledged that um, the election wasn't stolen, they knew it, they kept pushing the lie to make money? I, not, I didn't read the transcript. I mean, I read some of the headlines. And then there's Nash Review. I think um, what's Kurt, Howard Kurtz had an article about it in the Nash Review that I skimmed over. Didn't, didn't spend a lot of time on it. I'll so level apparently with it. Rupert Murdoch is the arbiter of whether elections are stolen or there's <laughs> funny business or not. We take his word for yeah, it. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, he, he, he absolutely came out and said this is not a red issue or a blue issue. It's a green issue. You know, this will affect our viewership. So we let our reporters continue lying and i use the term reporters loosely obviously is that um is that what so, so that storyline would be similar to covid and the origin and the vaccine and the mask i mean I, i've got story after story after story about the mask doesn't work the energy department now says more than likely um the origin of covid was the wuhan virology lab new research finds little or no evidence mask effectively lessen covid spread i mean if if we're going to talk about things that the media got wrong let's talk about everything the media got wrong so there's a quick quick difference there you realize you just said things they got wrong this wasn't wrong this was a lie do you see the difference uh not really you do you don't you no 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 no. you think you think fauci was wrong and not a liar um i i mean it under uh, under perjury of 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 uh, under a penalty of perjury and under oath, had have you caught Fauci in a lie? Well, I, mean, I don't think Fauci's appeared under oath. Well, I mean, I think I think if he if that's he a it, really good point. Well, I mean, it, but but if he has to appear before you know uh, an oversight committee and he and he swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God, I think he will eventually have to admit that he was wrong. Now, was he intentionally wrong? Or not? I mean, that that that. I guess that's um, why we have investigations, and what I hope we find out. So, so again, j- just to clarify, you keep saying he was wrong. Now, R- Rupert Murdoch and what Sean Hannity are saying under oath is they knew they were lying. It's it's one thing to be wrong; it's another thing. What to is Sean Hannity's lie. responsibility to the public, Jeff? I mean, you're okay with somebody going on TV and and saying lies. 
Well, I mean, they, they do it every day. Well, okay, but again, I mean, surely you're not arguing that Fox lies more than everybody else. Um, can you can you sit here and say that you're okay with a news network internally discussing the fact that the election was not stolen? but then going on TV and saying it was. You're okay with that. They do it all the time. I mean, every network in America does that. So Fox has a conservative bias and a conservative audience. The other networks have a liberal bias and a less conservative audience. I mean, MSNBC would have a a liberal audience, and I can see it in would have a liberal audience. I won't accuse the networks of having liberal audiences. They would be less conservative than Fox. But, but I know, I mean, you're asking me my opinion. I don't trust Fox to tell the truth. I don't trust NBC to tell the truth. I don't trust the New York Times to tell the truth. I don't trust the Wall Street Journal to tell the truth. I don't trust anybody to tell the truth. The one thing I'll give Hannity and, and Tucker, they don't profess to be journalists. I mean, they, they accept the role as a pundit. So, but they are liars. And, 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 and in some way, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I don't disagree with that. I think in some ways, Hannity intentionally misleads. In some ways, Carlson intentionally misleads. That's the nature of the business they're in. So, and, and, and again, like, you're, you, you put no difference. You have no problem with, with people going on TV, flame, inflaming violence against the United States government by lying about the fact that the election was stolen when there no when they there's there's documented proof that they knew that it wasn't stolen and that they were they went on TV and lied. But Jeff, see I believe the election was stolen. I don't uh, care what Fox or Rupert Murdoch says. I believe through my personal research the statistical anomalies remain unexplained. I believe that Joe Biden got 81 million votes. How many of those were illegitimate? I don't know. Was it enough to make up, you know, to 75? I don't know. It, in other words, I don't trust Murdoch to tell me what happened. I don't trust Hannity. I don't trust Morning Joe to tell me. I try to find what I consider to be some credible reporting and, and better understand what the nuances and realities are. So, so I sit behind this microphone today believing that something happened in 2020 that nobody has fully explained to me yet. What when you have 85% of a district vote and normally 66, when you have 91% of a district that vote, when you have unsolicited mail-in ballots and you have ballot harvesting and, you know, I, I, yeah, but I have a lot. It, it, I guess what I'm arguing is Murdoch saying one thing, Hannity saying one thing, Joe Scarborough saying one thing. I mean, I listen to all that chatter and I take it into account consideration, but at the end of the day, I'm independent-minded enough to make my own decision and I'm convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that something happened in 2020 that didn't make any sense and doesn't add up. Yeah, because you were told that, and and whether you like, I mean, that's that's I mean, I'm not going to accept that. I mean, because I was told that. No, I mean, you like to admit it or not, you have viewers who who tune in to hear Sean Hannity's minute and to hear him three hours a day on the radio. And they believe what he is saying is true. And he has absolutely under per- the penalty of perjury said, I was lying. And that's the, that has no place in America. And you can do what. So, about who, it so Jeff, who do you trust to tell you the truth? Uh, 
certainly not Fox News. I mean, but but, but who? I mean, who, who do you trust to tell you the truth? I mean, you've come on the air and regurgitated things I hear on MSNBC that I think are total nonsense. But I don't insult you by you regurgitating I, I, some of the MSNBC stuff. I mean, I accept that I'm as part of you your mental makeup and the way you want to. I mean, I, I get that. But but to suggest that I believe everything the media tells me, I mean, that, that's unfair. I mean, I, I don't. I don't buy into what Hannity says no more than I buy into what, you know, um, Joe Scarborough says. I think they're all there to, to entertain an audience, to gain ratings, and to make a bunch of money. That's what I think Joe Scarborough's in the business for. That's what I think Sean Hannity's in the business for. I try to find what I perceive to be credible reporting, legitimate notions, and evaluate accordingly. And I still believe that something happened in 2020 that doesn't make any sense and has not been reasonably explained to me yet. And, and you know, sometimes the easiest uh, answer is the truth, and maybe people just don't like Trump anymore. But, I mean, I'm asking you a question. Who do you trust to tell you the truth? Um, you know, here, here's the thing. You say you do independent research. You don't trust media. Who are you doing research well, with it, that you don't? No, I didn't say that. Now? I said there are certain media outlets that over the last 11 years, I've come to trust more than others. There are people out there, I think, that do credible work. I tell Rev more than, more than, more than a time a week, the travesty with the New York Times is they have an infrastructure. They have very smart, capable people working at the Times they just choose to not do serious journalism. They are very capable of doing it when they decide to. They just choose not to. They allow that their liberal political ideology to impact or affect the way they report the news. I wish they didn't, but they do. But I don't discount everything the Times says. I don't discount everything Fox News says. I don't discount everything um, NBC News says. But the majority of these people are in the entertainment business because entertaining pays a lot more than enlightening. Well, it, it is true. They do it all for the money because it, it's certainly not a benefit uh, to the country. And I'll, I'll say this. If you don't think that Fox News influences a bunch of people who Trump says he loves, you know, the uneducated, the people aren't going to go the extra mile. They're just going to tune in and believe what they hear. And if a network is absolutely saying we're lying, that's a problem. Agree. Totally agree with that. And I'll accept everything you just said is factual. That there there are people who buy into whatever Fox says, just like there are people who buy into whatever MSNBC says. I don't think you're one of those, and I'm not one of those. Right. And, and so that's the difference. And, and I'll just leave it at this. There are some lies. And then there are lies that cause damage and harm, okay? And we can debate whether Wuhan virus was man-made or lab, and we can have investigations. And, you know, we're, we're, we're Monday morning quarterbacking how, how the government, and I mean Democrats and Republicans, handled that. Um, but I'll say this. One of them's dangerous enough to cause an attack on the Capitol. I didn't say an insurrection. I said an attack on the Capitol, and the other one is, you know, do, should we wear masks or not? No, there's come now, Jeff, 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 Jeff. They shut businesses down. 
They 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 yeah. they dissolved. I just, look, I, mean, I know Trump. I know Trump shut the businesses down, but give him a pass. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. We'll, we'll stay and, in and, this lane and forget what ended up to be lies about the dossier and Trump and Russia collusion. And well, how many times did Hillary say that Trump was an illegitimate well, I mean, president? I but, mean, but all those t- lies told, and lies and lies. I've told you a thousand times that the the part that bothers me most about some of the mainstream media, there are some capable people. There is a very time tested infrastructure in place. They have sources. They could tell you the truth if they chose to. More times than not, they choose not to. Back in a minute. My questions about the 2020 election have very little to do with the Dominion suit. I mean, Dominion has a suit against Fox, and what Jeff is talking about is Fox allowed things to be said over the air that they knew to be true. That's the basis of the Dominion. I think it's a bit over a billion dollars in damages they're seeking for. Might be $2 billion in damages, um, but it's a defamation suit against Fox. It's filed by Dominion Voting Systems, and it basically says that Fox allowed people to go over their airwaves and say things, I guess, defamatory about Dominion when they knew them uh, not to be true. Broadcasting false information in the name of um, about the Dominion machines. Uh, what, Rev, to, to, to promote claims about the 2020 election uh, being stolen from President Trump? None of my concern. I mean, I don't know enough about voting machines to have a, a, an opinion. I mean, I don't. I mean, the retabulations. You know the um, the spreadsheets. Remember when um, Sidney Powell said that there's some sort of um, Venezuelan government? You know, and I mean, I remember going yeah. like, "Whoa, damn!" I mean, that's out there. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, I mean, you know, if um if there's an appetite for that sort of information, capitalists will put it on the air. My concern about the 2020 election is and has never been centered around the Dominion voting systems. So, so the Fox suit. I mean, I I'm aware of the Fox suit. I, I, I've read a little bit. I've not read a transcript by any stretch. Jeff said he has. I have not. But if I'm not mistaken, it may be a couple of billion dollars in a defamation suit against Fox News. My concern is the ballot harvesting, the unsolicited mail-in ballots, and the fact that people voted for other people. You're not going to convince me otherwise. It's a little bit like the Murdoch case. Nobody saw the murder. Nobody's found a murder weapon. I mean, we're questioning the motive or not, but when numbers go from 66 to 89%, any reasonable, sane person would go, wow. I mean, something doesn't make any sense there. So so for clarity's sake, in, in relation to what Jeff was talking about with Dominion and Fox, my, my belief about what may have happened in 2020 with the presidential election has very little to do with what Fox was allowed or, or Fox, and Fox did. I mean, they, they may lose this suit. Because they did allow people to question the legitimacy of the election based on faulty voting machines. My argument never centered around that. Mine was always about ballot harvesting, unsolicited mail-in ballots. Um, the Americans for Center. Remember the Center for Tech and Civic Life? Some of the grants given. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I actually went as far down. And Jeff asked where I get the truth. Well, I'll tell you what I did. I mean, Rev remembers this well. I actually found the minutes to the Fulton County Election Commission meeting when they accepted the grant. And I read some of the requirements of the grant. In other words, if you take this grant, here's what's required of you. And it was about voter turnout. So, you know, I don't take Fox at their word. I certainly don't take 
MSNBC at their word. I don't take CNN at their word. In fact, nobody does because nobody's watching CNN anymore. But but I think, I mean, give me a little bit of credit. When I think something happened that doesn't make any sense and you can't explain, and I realize how much money Zuckerberg spent in the 2020 election, and I end up reading the minutes of the Georgia Election Commission in Fulton County when they accepted the grant, that's what journalists should do. Radio show hosts shouldn't have to do that. That should be journalists in pursuit of what? A political advantage? No, the truth. The truth. And, and I think, I mean, I think Jeff and I would agree to this. It's hard to find the truth. I mean, it really and truly is right now because entertainment is far more lucrative than information. I mean, the entertainment value, why do you think we've done fairly well on the radio show, Reb? Because we're informative or we're somewhat entertaining? Somewhat entertaining. I mean, there you go. And I wouldn't give us too much well, credit I mean, there. Well, I mean, no. You know, <laughs> but somewhat. We're neither informative nor entertaining. We just have a monopoly on this time slot. If anybody had any business sense at all, they would start a morning radio show yeah. to compete with ours. It'd be so easy. And beat the hell out of us. <laughs> and then we'd probably have to move on uh, and do something else. Let's and, go to but here would be an interesting question to ponder to me. Where would you recommend someone goes for the truth? And listen, not partisan. Wow. I'm just talking about truth. Th- think I, about that. Uh, no, no, I, I can tell you. If okay. I had to read, I mean, if I subscribe to one source. Now, again, this is somewhere that you would believe is the truth. I would believe is the truth. Our listeners, our caller Jeff would believe is the truth. Is there, a, is there that such if a place? If I had to come on the air for four hours and read verbatim a publication and say, I think this is as trustworthy as anything I could find out there, it'd be the Wall Street Journal. I think, I mean, it skews toward capitalism. It gives capitalists the benefit of the doubt. It cuts Wall Street a little slack. I mean, there's a reason it's not called the Main Street Journal, right? I mean, it's called Wall, the Wall right. Street Journal. So they're a little bit more sympathetic to finance and, 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 and you know, I don't want to say investing. They're a, little more, they're a little more friendly to big banks and big business than I'm comfortable with. But, but of one source, I mean, if you ask me every day, to come and quote a source from a publication of consequence, it would be the Wall Street Journal. Okay. I mean, I think they do as good a job as they can at getting it right. Now, now do I think they're impacted or influenced? Of course I do. We are. I mean, I am absolutely influenced. My opinions are shaped by what? Now, now the one thing I've never done is suggest to anybody that I'm a member of the media. I'm not a journalist. Every thing that comes out of my mouth is my opinion. I have an opinion about the Wall Street. You just asked me. I mean, in essence, you just said, what is your opinion of who you find most trustworthy? Mm -hmm. My opinion is the Wall Street Journal. Somebody else could have an opinion different than mine. They could be um, more accurate than mine is. But but when it comes to finding the truth, it's hard. I mean, it's real hard because everybody seems to have an objective, an agenda. 843-661-0937. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let's go to the phone. Robert in Chirag. Morning, Robert. Good morning. Good morning, Ken. Hey, Robert. Um, the the reason I called in um was basically about the previous caller, and you can just about tell most people when they're Democrat because when you ask them a question, they cannot, will not give you a direct answer. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Thing. All right. Thank you. No, go ahead. If you got something else, add it. Okay. Robert is no longer with us. I didn't mean to cut him off. I'm sorry, sorry. if I did. Sorry about that. 843 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Larry and Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. 
uh, I'll just listen to Jeff's call too. And it, my problem is I, I I enjoy y'all y'all back and back back and forth, but if if lying that hurts people was something that he was truly concerned about, the one that affects all Americans, not not just pushing those to the Capitol, but the one that affects all Americans were the, when when the FBI signed and and we know who signed the uh, Pfizer warrant stating that it was true and verified in order to obtain a warrant from a judge. And then they, and they turned around and used it and signed it more, not once, not twice, but three times. And it's three different men that's supposed to be in the FBI. And when they signed that saying that it was verified, knowing that it was not verified to, in order to get a warrant against a president, imagine if those people just turned on an ordinary American, which they could do. They tell a lie and your whole life is turned upside down. Those are the people that you should be concerned about, not Fox News, not Carl Tucker, uh, any any of the news shows or, or opinion shows. The ones that signed are uh, able to go in front of a judge and tell a lie and have no consequences whatsoever for them telling a lie, but it turns normal, everyday Americans' lives upside down. Those are, and, and then then, then they, they have no responsibility. They don't answer to anyone. And as we can see, they've gotten away with it. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. And Larry kind of jumped the gun a little bit. Larry stole my stole my thunder. I normally steal somebody else's thunder. He stole he stole mine. I, had a, I actually had a list written down during the last break. Let me ask our listeners: Does it matter if Sean Hannity is trustworthy or not? Does it matter if Joe Scarborough is trustworthy or not? Forgive me. Does it matter if I'm trustworthy or not? In the grand scheme of things, I'm a gnat on a buffalo's ass. <laughs> but doesn't it matter if we can trust the FBI or not, the CIA or not? It better matter. The CDC or not, the Office of President or not? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, does it really matter if we can trust Fox News to shoot us straight? It's a media empire. Jeff said it, and I'll agree with it. It is the most influential media element in America today. There is no doubt about it. Even in Limbaugh's best day, he didn't impact conservative thought like Fox News does. But they have built a dynasty. It is unrivaled in its impact or effect on uh, on American politics and really culture and society in some way, shape, or form. But, But if we've gotten ourselves to a point as a nation that we refer to Fox News as what is and what ain't, then that's our problem, not Rupert Murdoch's. I mean, in all honesty, I mean, who comes on at, at 7 on um on Fox News? Jesse Waters. Who comes on at 8? Tucker Carlson. Who comes on at 9? Sean Hannity. Who comes on at 10? Laura Ingram. What do you think they're in the business to do? Entertain. Yep. For profit. Make money. So, so, so to me, if you've got the CDC, the FBI, the CIA, the NHI, uh, the Congress, the president, you got them over here, and over here you've got CNN and Fox and MSNB and MSNBC. If we were a serious nation, we could care less if Fox tells us the truth. We could care less if, if CNN tells us the truth. But but we surely need to trust what the CDC says and what the FBI says. And I mean, did did I think I argued this point, Reb? When when we found out or we became suspicious that the FBI may have conspired with Twitter 
I remember telling you, I don't care what Twitter did. I mean, they, they, they have a right to do that. I mean, if Twitter wants to mislead, they have a right to mislead. If Twitter wants to misrepresent, they have a right to misrepresent. If Twitter wants to censor my conservative opinion, they have a right to censor my conservative opinion. My concern is when Twitter began to conspire, collude with the FBI. I mean, when you start tainting a government agency, once again, I look at Twitter like I do Fox. I mean, it's a private enterprise. I mean, I know it's publicly held, and you could argue fiduciary responsibilities and all these other um, important points. But, but I, I just think to suggest that we need to trust Fox as much as we trust the FBI. Th- th- those are in different universes as far as I'm concerned. Um, I watch Fox because Tucker's really good at what he does. And I think Tucker's really a burr in the saddle of what I'll call legacy media. He's turned on those folks. Tucker was a neocon. Tucker was somewhat of an establishment Republican. And Tucker, uh, I don't want to say saw the light. I don't know what happened to him, to, you know, the evolution or transformation of Tucker Carlson, but he's a very powerful political figure today. Should Tucker be more responsible with what he says and does? Ask Tucker. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I can say this. There's not many days go by that when I leave here and on my way to my next, you know, appointment, I'm thinking about, you know, how responsible were we, how irresponsible were we. There's been a few moments on this show that, that I'm thinking about, and, I, and I'll give you an example. During the COVID, when, when people in the medical community were challenging me, they said, man, you've got an audience, and, and you connect with people, and um, these people, y'all have this relationship, and it's, pretty, it's a pretty intense relationship. You need to tell these people to get vaccinated. And I remember responding, there's no way I'm telling people to get vaccinated. I'm not telling them to not get vaccinated, but there's no way I'm telling. I never struggled with that. I mean, I'd love to come on, on you know, radio or television and say, man, I really struggled. I was burdened with that. I prayed about that. I didn't know what to do. I, you know, I needed to be led. and needed to be counted. No, I never struggled with that because I always accepted my responsibility as not one of giving medical advice. So, so from day one, Rev and I made our minds up. We're going to tell our listeners, do what you think you need to do in concert with your physician. I mean, if you've got a medical professional that you trust, Trust his judgment. That's the only thing we should say. But, but there's no way in this world that anybody should trust me about going to get vaccinated or not. But members of the medical community, and Rev knows this, they leaned on me. But they basically said, you've got this connection with your audience. It's in their best interest to go get vaccinated. You have a responsibility to strongly encourage them to go get vaccinated. And my response, spawned, I mean, just instantaneously was, you're crazy. I'm not doing that. I mean, I'm going to tell them what, what I believe about the vaccine. And I think from day one, Jeff was talking about it's easy to armchair quarterback. I don't think we ever armchaired quarterback on the vaccine. I don't think we ever armchair quarterback on the mask. I don't think we ever armchaired quarterback on the lockdown, the shutdown, the, sh- the, you know, the, the destroying of businesses and lives. I don't think we ever armchaired. We said on day one that this doesn't make any sense. So, so to suggest that, Members of conservative media, talk radio in particular, you know how they are. They'll, they'll armchair quarterback. They'll swoon in at the last moment and say what all they believed and didn't know. We always stood on that ground, proudly on that ground. Take a break back in just a few. 843-661-0937. Couple of callers. Let's go there. Scott in Florence. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, you guys are uh, killing it, synthesizing the uh, all the issues this morning. It's great stuff. Um, I wanted to kind of address uh, your previous caller, your the sh- friend of the show, Jeff. But uh, uh, first, I want to say you're dead right about the corporatization of news delivery and trusting Fox News versus ABC, NBC, or what, 
is commonly called legacy media. You're dead right. It's all about making money, and you know that's what's broken down in our <clears throat> in our society is that we don't have trustworthy news delivery channels. We have advocates. Um, that was my first point. The second was uh, you were asking uh, what is the tri- you asked Ken what the trustworthy uh, uh, news source is. And I always tell people, you know, when they were arguing about COVID, find a primary source and read that first before you listen to somebody who's interpreted that primary source. Um, But back in the day, it used to be the Christian Science Monitor was the paper of choice for political people because they were dry white toast down the middle, just the news, kind of like Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am. and then as far as, uh, uh, yeah, the, the uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch, uh, uh, um, you know, testimony that he lied, he couldn't have lied because he can't know whether there was election fraud or not. There's never been an accurate audit of an election to know if people actually voted. Um, you know, it just doesn't happen in our country. Uh, we kind of take it on trust, and given that Alabama is now the only state that requires, you know, myself, Scott, to turn in Scott's ballot, um, you know, you can only imagine it's rife with the opportunity to, uh, let's say, operate in the gray. Um, but, yeah, you guys are doing a great job. You can touch on any of those. And the only thing I would be critical of your show would be, uh, can your interpretation of, the Alex uh, Murdaugh, uh case, yes, you know, there are all these uh, if and buts, uh, but I think that saying goes if and buts were candy and nuts every day be Christmas. Um, that trust the jury. Our jury system does a great job, and those, juries, those jurors will go into deliberations, and they will be instructed to only consider the facts as presented in front of them, not, you know, what could have been but what is. So, you know, I think they'll come out to the right decision. They'll figure that out. So, Well thank said. You so thank much. you, sir. Appreciate, appreciate the guys. call. Absolutely. We, do we have time for About another call? 30 seconds. Jim. I'm sorry, but have at it. The floor is yours. Yeah, you got it. Jim, yeah. that's you. Yeah, okay. Uh, just first-time caller. Glad I got the time I did. I want your audience to look this up. It did not come from Fox News. Jacqueline Greger, B-R-E-G-E-R, committee hearing in Arizona concerning elections. They need to see this. And why would you be concerned? Because it started out as money laundering, and the money laundering dealt with states, and South Carolina was one of those states. we got to get out of here. Thank you for the call. Thank you for today. We'll talk again tomorrow.